Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast, where uh, we probably don't have a sound effect, do we? No, we got one. We got we one. one. We okay. got We're back. Uh, yeah. Okay, three, two, one. There it is. All right. Uh, welcome back to the Critically Acclaimed podcast. My name is Whitney Seibold. I am a film critic. Uh, I contribute to Slash Film. Hmm. And with me, as always, is my stalwart companion. William, introduce yourself. Uh, I would, except I'm stalling. Stalwart. I didn't say stalling. Oh, never mind that. Uh, my name is William Bibiani. I am a critic <laughs> for... St- stand up and resolute is what that means. Okay, well, I'm going to be sitting down and very timid. Uh, my name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibs. I write for The Rap and sometimes Slash Film as well. And uh, yeah, everybody calls me Bibs. We are here to review a couple of movies. And I mean literally a couple. <laughs> this uh, this was the week that uh, James Cameron's new film, mm. uh, at Tar, Yes, with uh, with Kate Blanchett. Sure. Uh, First person to make that joke, everybody. Let's yeah, I know. Applause. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. And and add, add three R's, so it's Avatar. Yeah, R R R. Like that movie. I like that movie. First so person to make that joke. Definitely the first one. I didn't see that one on social media at all. No, James Cameron released an Avatar film. It's it was expected to be the biggest thing ever. It might still be. Yeah. But that means every other release, like, stayed the hell out of its way. God, he played chicken with literally every other movie in existence and every other movie blinked. There was uh, a brief moment uh, several years ago when James Cameron took 13 years to make it. And uh, there was a, a talk for a while that it was going to be released on the same day as whatever the new Star Wars movie was. Yeah. I think it might have been uh, the, the Rise of Skywalker. This was... But this... Um, I think it would have been before Disney owned it, though. Oh yeah, maybe so. so. It probably also, was like Force Awakens. Or so something. yeah, it yeah. might have been. But there, there was some talk that at the second Avatar and yeah. the new Star Wars were going to open on the same day. That would have been helpful. And they were just like going to be butting heads all weekend, and yeah, uh, it didn't happen that way. Nope, it took a little longer. And uh, no, but, it turns out when Disney owns most of the major franchises, most of the major franchises aren't trying to compete with each other very hard. No, no, no. It's yeah. Um, it's almost like it's, it's a monopolistic practice. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like a business ethics. Uh, <laughs> but some movie did. One uh, movie. There are a couple least, of movies. At least one other movie did, and I saw that other one. Yeah. So, so, uh, so we're, we're gonna we're gonna talk about Avatar: The Way of Water, but we're gonna save it for a second, mm-hmm. uh, and we're gonna go into quite a bit of detail. Because we figured people had a chance. Just your money's worth. You yeah, know. yeah. Because uh, normally we review a bunch of movies, and this time we only got two, and I didn't even see. The film Whitney is about to review. Mm-hmm. It is the latest film from Alejandro Gonzalez in Yaritu. Uh-huh. It is a Bardo. Bardo is the title. Yeah, tell oh, me the, about well, Bardo. the full title is Bardo, comma, False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths. Is uh, he doing his Fellini shit again? Oh, he is Fellinying the heck oh, out of this thing. Okay, fine. This is this is more Fellini than Fellini ever Fellinied. Um, if it's more Fellini than Fellini ever Fellinied, mm-hmm. then it's the exact same as that great beauty guy. Oh, uh, uh, the hell is that guy? Not, not Guadagnino. Um, no, not Guadagnino is not Fellini. Uh, it's the, uh, Sorrentino. Paolo yeah, Paolo Sorrentino. Sorrentino. Paolo Sorrentino is the Fellini. Fellini wishes was Fellini. Uh, I liked his. He he did the Fellini thing in his last movie, and weirdly. Uh, when he was going like the most Fellini, that's yeah. when I found him the most tolerable. Oh my God. When it, whereas in the other ones, I felt like he was like Fellini is in his last movie. Oh, uh, I didn't even realize that. 
Yeah, like, or I guess F- Fellini, like, I think we see the back of his head or something. He's trying uh, to get uh, the young version of Sal- uh, Paolo Sorrentino is trying to get a job on the set of the new Fellini movie. Oh, my God. So, like, a Fellini production is in the film. That would uh, be, like, I don't know, like, some kind of Spielberg movie where he, like, ends the movie with him meaning John Ford or some Or shit. something like that. Yeah, that'd be ridiculous. Yeah, well, what was what was Sorrentino's film? The the, was, the autobiographical. Last I remember one. was Youth, but that wasn't his last one. No, no, no. The the autobiographical one. Yeah, I don't did. recall. I don't I, recall. I, I saw it. I liked it. It was uh, something of something something with the guy, hmm. Paolo Sorrentino. Hang on, I got it. I, I'll I'll solve this fucking <laughs> mystery. Uh, the the hand of God. Oh, it was the hand of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, the hand of God was pretty good. Right. Uh, but this new film, Bardo, from uh, Alejandro González Iñárritu, is yeah. the latest in uh, this big trend of c- cinema du solipsism uh, that is just a big running trend right now, where uh, a lot of filmmakers of a certain age, usually mm. in their 60s or 70s, are making very uh, personal, very autobiographical movies about sort of the, the places they went as children their experiences as a ch- as a child or as artists. And uh, Bardo is about a filmmaker who is very much an Iñárritu stand-in. Mm. Uh, and this movie is kind of like an extender. It's, it's almost like reading uh, James Joyce. It's like this okay. weird, constantly in and out of dreams. You know how Inyaritu loves to do those like really long sustained takes. Yeah. Because uh, his his film Birdman uh, was made to look like it was all, ex- all exactly one take. Like and there was yeah. one edit near the end that was intentional. Yeah. Uh, you know, there, and he does thing. It's he uses like a lot of digital trickery and he hides edits places. But for the most part, it's supposed to look it, like it, it's, it gives you the illusion of one yeah. long interrupted take. Uh, his movie The Revenant is not one long interrupted take, but a lot of that movie is done in long interrupted takes, yeah, for yeah. example. And, so, and uh, Inyaritu uh, runs a little hot and cold with me. Yeah, I'm the same way. Uh, I, I the more I think about it, the more I like Birdman. It's think, a good movie. I think it's yeah. uh, I think it's kind of daring that uh, the Academy gave Best Picture to a film that says that films are vastly inferior to theater, <laughs> and also that superhero movies really suck and they yeah. drain the life out of art and artistry, yeah. and actors in particular, and how they'll never escape that. Yeah, I, I admire a lot about Birdman. I think it's a good movie. Mm. It's one of those movies, though, that because it is about. Uh, filmmaking and other forms of of art and um it, it's hard not to view it as a little in its own head you know well, it, 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 but to a distracting mm, degree and okay. a degree that i think is not entirely intentional mm. but to a degree that is that's it comes across as somewhat self-serving to the people who made it and i'm not even exclusively talking about inuritu okay uh so but it's good it's good. I didn't think it was the best film of that year or anything, but it's a good movie, and God knows the worst films have won Best Picture. Mm. Uh, he's done some films that I definitely did not like. Um, I think Babel. It's it's a big, dumb mess of a film. I, I do not like that film There's some all. good performances in it, I'll give you yeah. that, but it's a, as a melodrama, it is just embarrassingly mm. blunt. Yeah, uh, and in a way that, and again, I can handle blunt melodrama. I like blunt melodrama sometimes, <laughs> but uh, Babel just felt extremely contrived and frustrating. And I felt similar ways about his film Beautiful, 
Um, yeah, well, yeah. B I U, beautiful, beautiful. That's just a miserable that's movie. The, it, that's that's one of those films that's just like it wants you to feel bad, and it doesn't seem to want you to feel much else. Yeah. And as a result, it seems for all of its intended drama and depth, it ends up feeling incredibly shallow. Yeah, which I mean, is something I felt a bit about for his film Twenty One Grams. Uh, I didn't see 21 Grams. I didn't see Amores Perros. I've never seen Amores Perros. I know I need to. A lot of people say that's one of his best films still, and I need to see that movie. 21 Grams is pretty good, but it's one of those films uh, in the in like that sort of traffic vein where we follow a bunch of different people. They, they, uh, they're they, all kind of connected to a similar world and a they, similar incident. I think they, it's a they, car they crash in that one. They briefly called it uh, the hyperlink drama. That's oh, what, yeah. That's what Babel was as well. Also the movie Crash. Yeah. Uh, this idea that there are um, multiple stories going on simultaneously, Yeah. and they all kind of link to each other in surreptitious ways. The, the, typically like one incident sort of... Uh, mm. if, if it doesn't connect them all, it sets the story in motion and the yeah. branching uh, uh, narratives there's good stuff in 21 grands but but a lot of it's um it, it also kind of time jumps a bit too and i started finding it a bit mm. forced okay. but there's some good stuff in it yeah i i feel like uh in your definitely has certain interests he sure. in, in and not just in terms of like uh sort of his techniques yeah uh he's very interested in uh sort of art and uh, how artists view themselves. Uh, he's very interested in uh, um, Mexico and Mexican history. Because he's Mexican. Uh, and He's interested in people putting themselves through intense emotional experiences. Um, he's interested in uh, characters who are in a place where they have to painfully self-examine. That's yeah, like The Revenant is a good example of that as well. I actually like that movie a lot. I think I think it might be a favorite uh, Revenant, to movie. I like Re- The Revenant okay. Uh, I, I like the, it quite a bit, but that's one where, uh, you know, it's it's a, it, it's a great acid western. It's all about, you know, the emotionally harrowing yeah, and, uh, uh, journey and, like, the fact that there's, like, a really scary bear attack is <laughs> kind of incidental. It's mostly about what people are going through. Excuse me, I'm about to sneeze. Oh, uh, tight. <laughs> well done. Excuse me. We, uh... uh I love the scene in The Revenant where uh, Tom Hardy plays this sort of, like, murderous mountain man who desperately wants to kill Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. And Leonardo DiCaprio is injured, and so Tom Hardy kind of, like, leans over him, and he can barely move because he's injured. And he says, well, if if you blink, I'll kill you. It's all right. You know, I can take you, put you <laughs> out of your misery. Just blink once. <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio's like staring at him trying not to. It's a really great scene. He's got a great speech in that movie where he talks about how God is a squirrel. It's a great <laughs> so, speech. That's like, a great fucking speech. I like speech. to think that Tom Hardy made that up. Uh, maybe. Uh, but uh, Bardo is now all of Inyaritu's interests in one place in this big three hour self reflexive epic about him. Uh, and it's very Jodorowsky because we're halfway in dream space and we're halfway out. And so sometimes something very surreal will happen all of a sudden. Um, there's a scene early in the movie where uh, the main character is played... Uh, uh, what is the character's name? S- Silverio, I think his name. I think that's right. Um, yeah, yeah, Silverio Gama Diego is, uh, is the character's name. Uh, he's on... Uh, an L.A. train. In fact, he's on the L.A. train that passes right by our house. They're, they have the sort of the loudspeakers. Right. And he looks down at his feet, and it's it's flooded. And there's little axolotls 
swimming around in the water and he gets down in the water and he starts swimming through the water and he swims and all of a sudden he's in like a, a different room and he's facing a bed and then all of a sudden there's sand on the ground instead of water like that kind of surreal imagery yeah. where things just sort of flow into one another and yet it all makes sort of sense in this emotional kind of a way that what he's really uh, examining this character is a documentary filmmaker who is about to be given a great honor in a couple of days mm. and as his, this fictional character's career has gone on, this fictional character's films have gotten more personal. Uh, he So even though he started out doing sort of these objective documentary dramas, now he's making sort of movies about himself. And now he's concerned about how that makes him look and how a lot of uh, traumatic experiences from his own life are playing into this. There's this surreal uh, recurring motif where... His son is being born mm. and then goes back up inside the mother. Ah! Uh, because he's not ready to come out yet. And I mean, I. Yeah. And he just sort of stays there for the movie and occasionally pops out again and ah. they have to, like, push him back in. Oh. And then we finally, oh. we finally realize near the end of the movie there's a sort of symbolic uh, thing what, that happens where they kind of explain what this symbol means, this child that won't be born. Uh huh. Uh, but there's also things that are actually definitely very real. He lives with his wife. He lives with his teenage son. They live in Los Angeles. Uh, but he's also concerned with, you know, his identity as a Mexican man. Mm. Uh, so there's actually this surrealist sequence where he goes to an old uh, uh, temple that was once raided by uh, Cortez and his army. And uh, he sort of stages in this really sort of fakey, cartoony way, this battle where everybody dies. Yeah. And of course the camera pans up and there's Los Angeles in the background. Mm. So this is all, you know, dramatic and historic, but also completely fake. Yeah. So there's also a scene later, later on, <laughs> and this is straight out of Jodorowsky yeah. where he gets to talk to Cortez who is sitting on a mound of human bodies. Oh, there you like go. Like this huge mound of human bodies that has to climb up. And then, of course, there's scene after scene of, okay, he's talking to Cortez, all the human bodies. Someone off camera yells, cut. It's all a movie. Of course uh, it is. That happens multiple times the, the, throughout. The bit about yeah. how you do like a big epic shot and then mm -hmm. like the Los Angeles is in the background. I remember mm -hmm. hearing a story once that they were talking about the filming of Akira Kurosawa's Ran. Uh -huh. which is his last big samurai epic, mm -hmm. which was his adaptation of King Lear. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and they were asking about some big epic shot that he did. I'm like, why did you frame it? Mm. Like right here with the mountains here and the mm. everything here. And uh, Akira Kurosawa said, well, if we framed it a little bit to the left, you'd see the Coca-Cola billboard. <laughs> it's like, that's just out in the city. Yeah. It's like, it just, this, is the, this is the angle where it looks <laughs> old. Like, yeah. Just that, that was the only one we could do. Yeah, that's how it works. Yeah. Uh, uh, I there's also uh, just like in Birdman, mm -hmm. there's a scene in Birdman where uh, the actor is played uh, played by Michael Keaton uh, has a conversation with a theater critic. Oh God, it's dangerous! It. It's dangerous when filmmakers uh. write critics into their movies because they tend not to have very rosy views of people in our line. It's not about rosy. I can handle not rosy. What bothers me is when they don't feel like people. Well, they, they, they feel like uh, they represent the yeah. like they they they're, represent they're an of, antagonist. Yeah, they're like the, to enemy, the enemy of art rather yeah. than. There are uh, very few movies that have a critic character. I feel is treated with again. I don't 
doesn't have to be the good guy, mm. but can they have the dignity afforded to literally every other character in the script? Uh, I, I feel like um, Oliver Platt's character in the movie Chef. Yeah, it's not a film critic; he's a food critic in that one. But, but he's he's he, actually he's a he's, good attitude. About he it. starts out as being something of an antagonist, but over the course of the movie, you realize, no, wait a minute, he's actually like promotes good art. And yeah, like he's actually dis- when he's disappointed, he'll just say so. Yeah, that's, he's, and he, that's not a flaw of his; that's his job. No, he, he there's a great bit in in that movie because like yeah, John he gives John Favreau's food a negative mm. review. And this sends John Favreau into a whirlwind, mm. and he thinks this guy is like out to get him. But towards the end of the movie, he's like, "No, I wanted to like your food. <laughs> I just can't pretend when I don't. Uh. And when you make good food, I want to tell the world that I want to help you. Like mm. that's that's what a critic is supposed to do. A lot of people think critics are only supposed to be positive now, and that makes no sense whatsoever. Because oh, if you're that, not, that if you don't the, the hell ca- out of me. if you don't have the capacity for negativity, if you won't let yourself be able. Mm. To say when something stinks, and you should be able to explain why. Uh, otherwise, it's not criticism; it's just an opinion. Um, th- then it doesn't really mean anything when you like it. Mm. You-, you have to be able to say both. Yeah, and uh, when the, you say both, like again, the, the, one of the greatest compliments I've ever had as a critic was from a filmmaker. I didn't like all of their movies, and they called me tough but fair. <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah. you know what? That, that's a great compliment mm. for a critic. Mm. Tough but fair. T- t- yeah. We- yeah. We, we we don't aim to be unfair. No, no, it's fine. It's just I just I'm not going to give you a rubber stamp. Uh, he, you know, here's something I love about Bardo. Yeah. Uh, there's a conversation with a critic. It's mm-hmm. actually a, like a friend of his who's criticizing not just uh like a, a recent work of his, yeah. but his whole body of work. Yeah. He like takes him up to there's this big party scene. Yeah. The camera drifts through and some things yeah. are surreal and, and he goes you through his entire and, body of work and when he gets to the new one he doesn't like it like on our podcast. <laughs> No, <laughs> that's our habit. No, um, I don't know how we started doing that. What? Uh, no, he takes him up to the roof and he sort of lays into this char- this filmmaker character, saying, "You know, you're you're sort of solipsistic. I think you're leaning too hard, hard into style." These are things people have said about Inyaritu. Sure. And I think Inyaritu is not trying to lambast the critics in that moment. Mm-hmm. He's trying to say, "I've heard all your criticisms. Yeah, this is all I'm really capable of now." Yeah. The the st- everything you're criticizing me for is just kind of what I do. Yeah, and he's he's like kind of apologetic and kind of guilty about it, but at the same time is explains that he's but not capable of any, th- doing that, anything. That's different. a that's a great response to criticism. Yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. listen, you're criticizing me for making choices, but to me, this isn't a choice. Yeah, this yeah. is the way I do things, and you may not like it, and you can explain why, but this is all I know how to do, mm-hmm. and this is what I will do. And if you don't like it, fair, but other people like it, so cool. That's that's a perfectly valid response to criticism. Mm. I, I make like no, there's no perfect art that will appeal to everybody, but just saying this, I made it the way I wanted to make it, and if you don't mm. like it, fair. Yeah, yeah, and, that's a great way. To, that's great. Uh, the, Very healthy. In fact, the, this main character, the Silvio character, um, or Silverio character, uh, doesn't ever really get defensive. He's sort yeah. of like uh, he's definitely going through like a, a midlife crisis, or he's. Uh, He's at the point where he's actually like kind of looking at mortality, and there's another entire sort of subgenre of of literature and filmmaking about the aging artist and how they're sort of mm. look uh, all that jazz is one of them. Sure. Um, uh, the other side of the wind is another one. Mm. Uh, uh, Death in Venice, you know, the, mm. the Thomas Mann novel. Um, these are all about people sort of at the end of their lives lamenting everything they've lost. Uh, a big part of his lamenting the libido, which is 
really obnoxious to me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm an old man. I can't fuck the way I used to. Yeah, I'm so sorry for you. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of the things uh, that rubs me the wrong way about eight and a half. Yeah, that's it a feel, big part it, of eight it, and a half. It doesn't like, feel so much I, about you so much as it is about... Like the women you're, you got to have sex with. Yeah, and I'm yeah. like, I don't care about that nearly as much as you seem to. And <laughs> like, I, I understand this is distressing for you, but you know, don't don't yeah. sweep us up in this. If, thing. if you the, were if you if we were at a bar hmm. and you were telling me all the stuff that you're going through in the movie, and I would after a couple of minutes come up with any excuse to sit somewhere else and not <laughs> listen to you talk about that. Hmm. That's a great start for your movie, and that's how I feel about eight and a half. But uh, yeah. anyway, uh, look, luckily we don't have like the sort of my port my libido wah kind yeah. of uh, moment in that movie. Good, uh, but you know he is looking at mortality, he's looking at his life, and mm. he's sort of uh, feeling not so confident in his body of work. Mm. Uh, this takes three hours. <laughs> wow, well, it's a lot. Quite it's a, a long, long life, honestly. You yeah. cut it down from like what seventy years. Uh, to three, that's pretty good. It's it's unbelievably self-indulgent because it's yeah. all about Inuri too. Yeah. And he's making it for him. And he's doing everything he can to make this look as dazzling as possible. And you know what? It is. Okay. Uh, these weird dream sequences, this magical realism, these bits of surrealism all kind of dropped in and tied together in this gigantic knot is actually kind of fun to explore. Mm. And while at the end of the day, the point is just... Like, he's making so many little points along the way, it's kind of hard to say that he's wrapped it up as in some sort of gigantic thesis other than just mortality in general, some kind of vague theme. Yeah. Uh, he He's making a, just a lot of really interesting, like, little vignettes yeah. as, as we go along. And I found myself getting really excited by the filmmaking. Wow, that's great. Uh, in a way that I don't usually get with Inuri 2. I've, I've always felt that he's really kind of a downbeat director. It wasn't until Birdman that I saw, oh, wait, he can actually be kind of energetic yeah. even the revenant for you know all its really beautiful photography is really it's a, dour and no it's a, it's a bummer uh, of a movie yeah. yeah he's he's i don't know i'm amazed hmm. and again there's nothing wrong with it this is just a style i guess but i'm amazed by filmmakers who can make something that depressing hmm. because the amount of time and effort it takes to make a movie <laughs> to keep that tone consistent to not get bored with uh-huh. one tone which is what a lot of downbeat movies kind of emphasize there's not a lot of variation mm. they're trying to keep you in a down place yeah uh and the amount of constant effort it must take to maintain that mm. uh and the confidence necessary to never like oh let's just let's just jazz this one up a little bit let's give them let's give the audience a little break let's give ourselves a little break <laughs> on set today uh, I'm, I'm amazed, honestly. Like I'm always like very impressed that people can access that kind of kind of miserable part of the human psyche and stay there for so long. Yeah, it's impressive, honestly. Like especially if you can do anything and say anything meaningful about it. Good for you. It's just mm-hmm. hard for me. Um. Yeah, uh, Inyari Two is not uh, not bumming you out this time. He's cool. like he's he's talking about some pretty heady subjects, and you know he has a lot of dark uh, imagery to go along the way. But yeah, he's really trying to make his own mind seem like this big swimmy uh, interconnected place. And I admire the effort, and I admire the result. Okay, I, I actually had a really good time watching this movie. Yay. I know it's getting a lot of pretty negative reviews and uh, I, I, it's hard for me to fault something mm. this visually exciting and this ambitious, yeah. even if 
at the end of the day, he's not saying too much. I, I think because sometimes... it's because it's clearly for him, and yeah. I enjoy him watching, enjoy watching him do this sort yeah. of love letter to himself. Now, again, I didn't see this, so I cannot speak to the specifics of the movie, but I can speak to what I think is an interesting tendency. Mm. Uh, we sometimes have people who are film lovers or film critics. Um, again, not everyone, but it happens. When a filmmaker has a particular style or patois, mm-hmm. something they keep coming back to over and over again, whether it's a genre or a style or a tone or, yeah. or a gimmick even, just whatever their thing is, and they do it a lot. It doesn't matter how good they are at doing it. After a while, some people are going to hit a wall and say, okay, but what else you got? Yeah. doesn't like, matter if it's the same fucking thing. Even if you know? that thing is really impressive. Yeah. It's like going to a restaurant every single day, hmm. ordering the exact same food, and it's always fucking brilliant. And some people, like after a week of that, will be mad at the food. Yeah. And it's like, you're the one who keeps going to that restaurant. You know, like you're, <laughs> just, you're going to the same cook over and over again. This is what they do. And they can do it well, they can do it badly, but there comes a point where it's like, this is just. I think by this point, Inuritu is Inuritu. That's it. You know, there might be some modulation in terms of like what he's talking about, but you know, I, I see even films that seem in many respects to be rather different. Like, I don't know, like Birdman and 21 Grams are very different films in a lot of ways. But I still see a lot of his particular stylizations and obsessions in just different forms. They're just kind of remixed. Yeah, yeah. And you can't really be mad at him for being him. And I think some yeah, people just get exhausted with the filmmaker's think, yeah. output, even if it's still all good stuff. Well, and I think Bardo is actually really a lot about that, about yeah. sort of getting used to a certain kind of style and what can you bring new to the conversation and what if the filmmaker can't? What if this yeah. is it for him? Yeah. Um, I also want to give a shout out to uh, the cinematographer. It's Darius Kanji. Uh, <laughs> yeah, one of the best. Who, uh, who shot Seven mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of... Um, uh, He's worked with like Danny Boyle, did he some did film, film on Wise, worked with Michael Haneke. Hold on, there's uh, a film he, I think there's a film he did I, I really love. I want to make sure it's him and not he, someone else. He did uh, the original Funny Games. Yeah. He shot. I did the original one too. No shit. Yeah. yeah. Shot Lost City of Zed. He shot Okja for Bong Joon Ho. Not, not yeah. a good movie. Uh, he, he shot um, Uncut Gems, which is like re- oh, really out of character is, for him. Yeah. But yeah, really great photography. Um, yeah. He did a more. Yeah, also did a more uh, another another Michael Haneke. Yeah. Oh, I guess he didn't do the film. Oh, he did. You know what he did? <laughs> the Ruins. That horror movie, yeah. That is a that is a that is a that is a horror movie in which everyone does incredibly stupid things, <laughs> and yet it really works because it is extremely unnerving. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, anyway, great po- cinematography. Po- point being, he does great work. Amazing, and, one of the best. And, and this is like uh, a, just a triumph of photography, especially the way he has to make the camera and the lighting drift from like one unconnected dream sequence to the next. All of that's really impressive. Uh, this is one of those films that should be up for a bunch of awards and probably mm. won't be. It's like mm. another one that's just sort of being lost in the big mix of awards. Season. Well, again, it's it's uh, it's but it's it, a great it's it's a filmmaker who people think are, is great. Mm. Uh, and again, if you, I think after a while, people just hit a wall. It's like, well, we've given him. He's won best director twice, twice in a row, yeah. in a row. <laughs> that's pretty impressive. Do we need to give him everything? And I think after a while, people just sort of like, oh, did did uh, uh, Inuritu do something cool again? Mm. Good for him. 
Moving on. Like, I remember when okay. uh, uh, when the film To the Wonder came out. Yeah. It's a movie I'm very fond of. It's a great it movie. It's like a 2013 film. It's a Terrence Malick it was, film. Yeah, it was Terrence one, Malick. It was the one he did right after Tree of Life. Right after Tree of Life. Yeah. And uh, it had a lot of very similar themes to Tree of Life. Yeah. About sort of the passage of time mm-hmm. and the, the use of faith and all the rest of that. Mm-hmm. And, it's about, um, and, it's about a, as opposed to the story of a child growing up with mm-hmm. their and their relationship with their parents, is a story about uh, people in a relationship. Yeah, and that relationship falls apart, and then they meet other people, but they're still kind of deeply connected, and then yeah, those other relationships fall apart. So it's about different kinds of love: familial love versus romantic love. Yeah, and and yeah. And, and also uh, faith. Love, yeah, sure. Love, very love of very God spiritual film. Yeah. Uh, not just spiritual; it's like explicitly Christian. That movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, like the tides are going in and out. There's all these really interesting symbols, but a yeah. lot of people said, "Ah, eh, it's just." He's just doing Tree of Life all over again. Yes, but Tree of Life is extraordinary. <laughs> yeah, like I, I, it's not like you just do. It's not like you just come up with some of the best visual language in any movie, and then, well, time to forget that language. Like, yeah, kind of coast on it. Like, why not? Like, again, I, I, To the Wonder is a movie that I firmly believe is going to be rediscovered, and even if it has to wait until again, not quite. I hope it's a really long time. But there are some filmmakers who. When people just write off their work, they never quite come back to them. But then they'll just, they'll one day they'll die. They'll pass away. And all of a sudden, all of the obituaries and everything, everyone's like, oh, they were great. And they did this, they they talked about the same, they this incredible style that permeated throughout all of their movies and all these incredible themes that they explored in a bunch of different ways. And I'm like, that's what some of you were criticizing him for. <laughs> Like what it's, do you? It's almost like a oh, what have you done for me lately? It is, kind of but then when they're no longer here, it's like well, look what they did for me a long time ago. I'm like, yeah, that still matters when they're alive. Mm. And I remember, to the wonder was the film where I was just like, I need to be extra careful not to do that. Yeah, I, it's, to, it's to, to, to dismiss something that's really extraordinary just because, because it just, resembles something that was recent, especially when the, especially when that filmmaker already did that. Like it's yeah. their thing. Mm. It's hard to get mad at someone for just having a style. Like what? So man, people I'm, would kill for that kind of stuff. I'm trying not to do that with Bardo, where it's it's in your yeah. court of sort of doing everything, but he's just doing it a lot bigger this time. But that's impressive. I think what he does is kind of impressive. These kind of big, uh, very splashy machinations, a lot of uh, style. So sometimes in service of something very melodramatic, sometimes very self-serving. In this case, yeah. But impressive nonetheless. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I was actually really excited by this movie and I, I i i hope it gets sort of a little bit more attention yeah well uh speaking of filmmakers with uh, uh you know a, a thing <laughs> boy <laughs> do they keep doing that one thing self-indulgent three-hour movies yeah i saw uh, two of those this week <laughs> you did i'm impressed upon the time uh we were now is the time to talk about James Cameron's new Avatar movie. And while I don't want to fall into the trap that we keep falling into, mm. where we'll go over someone's entire filmography, I do think it's interesting. I did write an article uh-huh. about James Cameron's entire filmography. I, I It's the ranked format, but it just gives you an excuse to revisit everything they've ever done yeah, and yeah. put it all in some kind of context. Um, I do that for the rap, and you can see me uh, rank all 13 of James Cameron's movies because I included also his feature-length documentaries, which he's uh-huh. done three, uh, and also his short film, his first film, Xenogenesis, which mm-hmm. I had never seen before, and is really neat. <laughs> and I want people to see this. It's on YouTube. You can find it pretty easily. It's like 10 minutes long. Uh, it hasn't been preserved very well. It looks like it was like ripped off of a VHS that's been around. 
Um, but have you ever seen this? No. It's really neat. Well, okay. you, you pointed it out to me, so I, I watched bits of it when, when you sort of posted it on yeah. the social media. But yeah. So, like, uh, Xenogenesis was the short film that James Cameron did in 79, I think. 78, 79. Uh, and it co-stars... Uh, it stars uh, William Wisher, who uh, would write movies with James Cameron later in his career. Uh, and it is a short film, and how it plays is we're watching an episode of a 1970s sci-fi series. The sci-fi series is about a humanoid robot in in human skin and uh, a a young woman, and they are traveling uh, from planet to planet trying to find a new place to restart the human race. Uh, The tone is very Valerian and Laureline. Okay. uh, Very flip- uh, but the overall vibe is like the Star Lost or 1970s Doctor Who. Okay. Ambitious, but the money was clearly an issue. Um, and the plot of it is this guy is like wandering through wonderful matte painting right out of Forbidden Planet. Uh, this big giant space machinery. They landed on a planet and it's full of ruins, but no people. Uh, and he notices that, like, wait a minute, all of th- th- this particular place in the ruins is spotless. And that's when he finds out that there's, like, a robot, kind of like Wally, that's been, like, cleaning it up. Except mm-hmm. the robot is, like, 25 feet tall, and it looks like the hunter-killer robot from the Terminator in the future sequences. And it starts trying to kill him. And after he's about to, like, fall from, like, you know, a big walkway to his death, mm-hmm. there's a big pounding noise. And then uh, his his uh, his partner, a young woman, uh, is using basically like the power loader armor from Aliens, except uh. it's a giant robot uh, a spider. She's piloting a giant robot spider, and she's fighting this other robot, and it's exactly like an Aliens. She's using like the blowtorch and like the front, like uh, like Ripley does to like fight uh. off the. And you're watching this, and like um. All the pieces of, like, James Cameron's over are everywhere over everything he does. <laughs> and, like, in a very literal... Not even just thematically, but just, like, the ideas. I also watched um, Piranha 2, The Spawning, mm. which sucks. Uh, and he was fired from it. But he did work on it a lot, and he developed the screenplay. And that one is about... Uh, a lot of underwater stuff. A lot of underwater stuff. Like, the first scene is a bunch of people doing scuba diving and, and having sex underwater. Uh, there's a evil government that's trying to get you. Capitalism's trying to get in the way of that. And uh, the monsters are flying fish that pop out of your body. And he would end up reusing some of those visual effects ideas for the facehuggers and aliens. Um, so he's had the same interests for a long time now. Yeah. We just keep coming up with The Abyss... The Abyss is about, you know, underwater salvagers who make first contact with underwater aliens. That movie's they're, great, by the way, except of, for the ending. They're made of water. Well, sometimes they're made of water. <laughs> who thinks it was a Russian water tentacle? Right? <laughs> <laughs> that movie's... I rewatched that, uh, uh, the director's cut of that. That movie is fucking amazing until, like, the last five minutes. When and then it just plastic, shits the bed. The big plastic thing comes out of the water. No, it's not even... Yeah, like, before, just that and just before. Like, he did not know how to end that. <laughs> He's got some ideas, but it feels really tactile. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work. But until then, I actually think it's it's arguably his best movie until then. Oh, okay. And then, of course, there's the Terminator movies, which mm. kick ass. Uh, the True Lies is aged very badly. 
in a lot of different ways, and I do not recommend it, although Jamie Lee Curtis is giving a great performance in it. It was considered funny at the time. I know. She's giving a performance, and I mean this, on par with Ginger Rogers. She is oh, just wow, okay. killing it in that movie. Yeah. The movie does not deserve her. It is a mean-spirited, sexist, xenophobic, Islamophobic, mean movie. And there's a couple of great action sequences in it, and <laughs> she's wonderful, but it is a rough sit. And then Titanic kicks ass. <laughs> I like Titanic. I didn't used to. I used to be a little snot about Titanic. I was like, I what happened to the Terminator guy? Yeah. And I was so adolescent when that movie came out. I was literally an adolescent. Um, <laughs> and it, it it just grows on me with every viewing. It's yeah, just it's yeah. a wonderful piece of pop cinema. It, it was considered uh, like uh, it was the the, the mid nineteen nineties, and there was a big yeah. booming indie scene. So anything uh, sort of the the mainstream pop stuff was yeah considered dismissible this kind of old-fashioned uh, hollywood epic like yeah. no you understand we have indie epics we have the english patient which is like an which is like a studio film only super depressing and well, not very good well, i wasn't gonna point to, to the english patient <laughs> well my point is like that's like that was the one that was in at the time that's the one that in, swept in, the academy low awards. budget uh you know romances and dramas were coming out all the time yeah uh so yeah something like titanic was that that was the man Titanic was the man, and uh, and yeah. James Cameron is the man uh, oh, very much in, so. in the positive and the negative connotations of that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Then many many years later, he came out with Avatar, and um, uh, and then thirteen years after that, Avatar two. Like he's yeah. he's just been really slow in his role because mm. he has become really deeply obsessed with technicals. Yeah, uh, Titanic was such a hit, and it used every tool in the toolbox. The, yes, it did. The special effects are awesome and titanic there's a lot of great practical uh, effects a lot of uh, cgi effects which mostly still hold up cgi effect, yeah, yeah uh, there's, and there's a few shots of the ship here and there which look a little fake by there, today's standard but it's still pretty good there's miniatures and there's yeah. sets and there's practical effects and there's cgi and he just sort of mixes it all together to make everything just look really yeah very real uh avatar he tried to do the same thing he waited yeah. until the he technology wrote, was ready he wrote for it him. way back in the 90s uh, and yeah, I had to wait until uh, technology caught up. And so he created uh, this alien planet, this moon uh, uh, called, Pandora. called Pandora. And on Pandora, everything is just sort of blissfully beautiful. Humans can't breathe the air. Yeah. And there is an intelligent species uh, called the Navi, one of many intelligent species on this planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're humanoid. They're nine feet tall. They have blue skin. Uh, and they have these tendrils that grow out of their heads yeah. that can sort of like... S- when they touch other tendrils, they can sort of like psychically link. You can read minds that way. Yeah. Uh, and they, they use it. They can kind of like plug their own tentacles into animal tentacles and like yeah. ride them and bond with the animals. And curiously enough, it's also a sexual organ. It's not a sexual organ. It is a sexual organ. Somebody makes a sexual joke. You're focusing on that way too much. There's a deleted scene uh, in which that's how they have sex. Well, they they do it while they have sex because they're linked. They're linked, uh-huh. but they also have sex with you know the regular way. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they also use it to like bond with trees and stuff. And yeah. in the middle of Pandora is this big uh, Earth Mother, this living conscious yeah. god god being. Yeah, like the planet yeah. itself mm. has the, the ecosystem of the planet has like um a Mother Earth or or Gaia yeah, from mother, Captain Planet yeah. kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, story super simple. Uh, yes, it is a colonial story that goes back to the days of James Fenimore Cooper. It's a white man goes native tale yep. from uh, colonialist times. Uh, that's a, a 
big fucking issue with the movie. It's the foundation uh, of, of yeah. Avatar, really, is the idea that here is, in addition to being an ableist story, because the whole thing is about it's a guy in a wheelchair who will do anything not to be disabled anymore, and mm. it, we'd never really come to terms with that. It's just better not to be disabled, according to Avatar. Mm. Well, um, I, I think they explained that he, he had recently been injured, so it's like a fantasy he still had. No, I appreciate uh, that, but it's also, it's, it's, it's also he's... It's not very thoughtful about it. I'll just say no, that. definitely. And There's then, nothing thoughtful at all no. about much of James Cam- James Cameron's work. That's mostly true. I think there are exceptions. I think I, the Terminator think, movie has some big ideas, but mostly you're right. A kind yeah. of in, in a, but in a structured, technical sort of a way about sort of causality. It's not I, I, not about sort of the emotional uh, sense. Apart from Titanic, mm-hmm. I don't find his films to be incredibly moving. I would argue uh, that Terminator Titanic Two is, has is some pretty, has some really solid relationships in it. Sir Connor and John, I think they have a really interesting relationship. I think John forms an interesting relationship with a creature that cannot have one with him. Yeah. yeah. But regardless, I, I think that movie's more emotionally given credit for. But I agree, generally speaking. And yeah. I, I think the director's cut of Aliens has a more rich, at least relationship between Sigourney Weaver and Newt. Yeah. Uh, just when it comes to things like. Uh, hmm. Char- like the, the deep inner lives of the yeah. characters, we don't get that in James. Cameron no, movies. in fact, even even Titanic, as much as I adore that movie, it's the romance is pulp. Yeah, it's, the it's really is, it's all on the surface. It's, it's like, oh, we're we come from different worlds. We're incredibly attracted to each other, and we're relatively nice, and no one else is. So we're going to have sex while we're on the ship. That's basically <laughs> as far as that goes. Yeah, it's, it's tragic because they're young, and it got cut off, hmm. um, and that works. It works perfectly well for Titanic, but let's not pretend that's a, a very deep emotional yeah. connection that they have. It's young love, and, and uh, I think there's a difference between. Uh, sort of great filmmaking and merely effective filmmaking. Mm. I feel like James Cameron is definitely the latter where he knows mm. the kinds of beats he needs to hit without mm. sort of doing something clever to make the emotional moments transcend. Again, I think there's a couple of exceptions to that rule in his filmography, but generally speaking, I agree. Yeah, and, I think he, I think I think he understands the, the, the tropes that go into yeah, things. So I, I yeah. think He's working entirely in tropes with that that first Avatar. Oh, very, very much so. It's it's, it's all just broad character types that are he's using to hang these, quite frankly, very impressive special effects. They're they're cool visual effects. I agree with that. But and and I know some people perceive Avatar, speaking exclusively the first one, just because the new one hasn't had enough time to really like marinate marinate and to get like the the full critical discourse yet. Um, but I think a lot of people view Avatar uh, very critically, as we do. But a lot of people, and arguably more people, uh, view Avatar as, but really it's an experience. Who cares yeah, about they, the they story? Compare it to like a theme park ride. Uh, yeah, and it is a theme park. I would actually argue the new one is even more of a theme park ride, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, there's nothing wrong with being a theme park ride. It just is a thing to be. Yeah. Uh, but... I would argue that it is telling a story and it does have characters. And if those don't work very well, I don't care how good it looks. And the f- simple fact okay. is Avatar is a very poorly told story. The first movie in particular. Yeah. Um, it's, it, it falls apart like a house of cards. It's got huge yeah. plot holes. It has huge emotional like holes in it where like relationships don't make sense or work. Uh, and again, the fundamental basic premise of it is kind of racist and the movie it, it tries to make it seem like it's not uh-huh. but it is and it's construct and I don't know if James Cameron understands that I don't think he understands what someone like when when some of us watch it and we view it through those colonialist lenses because that's what it is at least it's, it's rude um, 
what keeps us from being immersed in it is how annoyed we are at it. <laughs> oh, that's true. I, I'm I mad at you for, I, for I even trying that, this right cer- now. Certainly you know? for you, but um, yeah, like I can't get in. I just can't get into it. I rewatched it recently. Mm. I tried to watch it with fresh eyes. Mm. I was fine with it for a little bit, and then after a while, I just about halfway through it, I was like, yeah, the, "This uh, movie isn't earning my interest." Yeah, other than it's pretty, I've seen lots of pretty movies before. This I, isn't the only one. I think. Uh, when we're talking about sort of films as a visual experience, then I'm I'm a lot more forgiving of something like Avatar. Uh, but I agree with if you. If it was a screensaver, I'd be singing its praises. I, I, I know you you, uh, you tend to approach films from like a, a screenplay perspective, a narrative and, perspective, thematic and perspective. And yeah. when the screenplay on something like Avatar is as bad as it is, then yeah. I can see how you, how you're just kept completely at odds. I don't but mind I that it's also simple. I just don't. I mind that it doesn't work on its own terms. That's what I, I also understand the people who went to go see it multiple times because of the beauty of the images, because of this magical forest uh, setting that he set Mm -hmm. up. And And hey, uh, I get it. I get that. It just, that doesn't work for me when everything else about it falls apart. Uh, And it was the biggest movie of all time. Uh, pretty much, uh, it, it earned more money than any other movie. Uh, I think yeah. Avengers Endgame beat it, and then it came back from yeah. like re-releases. Avengers Endgame, so, uh, Avengers Endgame beat it. It was close, but Avengers Endgame beat it, and then they re-released Avatar internationally, internationally uh, earlier this year in order to just sort of prime the pump for the new one because mm-hmm. one of the risks of putting out a new Avatar movie this much later than the original mm-hmm. is. It's been thirteen fucking years. People, <laughs> people might still like the original, but are they still enthusiastic? Are yeah. they still excited about it? It might just be in the past. So they wanted to remind people, hey, remember how cool Avatar you, you thought that was? And it turns out a lot of people still think it's super cool. It made, I mean, not as much money as it originally did, but it made a significant amount of money, and it pushed it right over the edge. Yeah. So it's now still the number one motion picture of all time. The original Avatar. Yeah, and uh, if if things go uh, apace, then Avatar: The Way of Water uh-huh. will also be the biggest movie of all time. Yeah, uh, it's got it's got a clear path. There are no other major blockbustery type releases until February, and that's Disney's Ant Man. So it's just Disney might just <laughs> hand off the toy. This is very likely, uh, unless the tide, unless people just aren't as into it. Uh-huh. This is very likely to stay at number one or at least number two for a few months. Like maybe Megan will get a big opening weekend. Maybe the new Magic Mike will get a big opening weekend. But I feel like Avatar is just going to be right up there, like Top Gun for a while. Uh, Just like the first Avatar, James Cameron waited until the technology was where he wanted it to be. So Mm -hmm. he could realize the kind of visuals he wanted. Because he wanted to shoot it underwater. He's an oceanography yeah. nut. He wants to go underwater. So he made this is what three feature length uh, underwater documentaries. Um, one of them is quite good. Uh, <laughs> Aliens of the Deep is quite good, and it's very right. pretty, and you should definitely check it out. Uh, the other two were fine. Uh, it, it, uh, well, he did one like back to Titanic or something. He did, he did uh, one that was uh, um, oh something of the abyss, Ghost of the Abyss. Okay. Where it was uh, them going back to Titanic, and he took Bill Paxton with him, and they just go underwater, and they're trying to just explore the the Titanic with like a bunch of little underwater drones, um, and it's got really cool underwater cinematography. That's great, but it's kind of a, basically travel log doesn't do much. He also did one that people don't talk about very much called Expedition Bismarck, where oh, he like no. where he like took. People who survived the Bismarck, you know, the, mm. the, the Nazis, and some of the people who sank the Bismarck back down to the Bismarck. 
where it is underwater. Where it is underwater. Um, and I'm not saying that isn't of interest, but um, it's also incredibly dry. And some of the like the the way they talk about how interesting things were on the Bismarck kind of lose the narrative thread of history a little bit, and it starts getting a little too excited about it. I'm like, you know what that ship was trying to do, right? Like a little over romanticizing that shit. Um, but Aliens of the Deep is quite good, and I would recommend that. But like, yeah, he's Point. he's really interested in underwater shit. Always yeah, has he's, been. He's he's uh, always been. Uh, he he uh, follows a vegan diet. Cares about the yeah. planet. He's yeah. very interested in in environmentalism. It contributes to a lot of environmental causes. I think it's incredibly ironic that he relies on the most advanced technologies. Mm-hmm. To have to artificially recreate his ideal version of the natural world. That is really weird, and we yeah. really need to have a longer conversation about that. Someday. I would love. Yeah, because I don't know it, if I've ever heard anyone interview James Cameron and put it that way. <laughs> like you want to, you want to recreate the natural world and all of its wonders, and you want to do it through CGI. It's yeah. weird. I remember I, I was doing some research on it, and I found this old interview from um, sixty Minutes, mm-hmm. I think, and. Um, he was talking about how when they shot that scene in Titanic, where it was Jack and Rose at the, at the front of the Titanic, uh-huh. you know, and it was beautiful sunset. Mm-hmm. And they said, we had to wait two weeks for the sunset to look like that. Okay. And now we can just do it in CGI. And I'm like, yeah, it takes more than two weeks to render now, though. I'm not sure it's really worth it. <laughs> oh, <that's laughs> I was like, I argue that's a little bit more impressive when you do it in Titanic. But anyway. Uh, but uh, yeah, he, he goes back to Pandora. We're yeah. back with the same character. Uh, Jake Sully yeah. uh, was the human character who had... Uh, the premise of the movie is yeah. these avatars are are Navi uh, mixed with human DNA. They're cloned be, uh, bodies. Yeah, so that, that humans, like Navi. so that humans can download basically their brain into the Navi, their consciousness. Yeah, they can, and then walk around on Pandora, breathing the air and experiencing it the way that the locals do. Yeah, they're, they're li- yeah. living in in. The body of the space alien. Now you and can the, uh, then like go back to your old body. But at the end of the original Avatar, uh, Jake's body died, mm-hmm. uh, and he was able to permanently implant himself in his Avatar body, and now this is just who he is now. Yeah, now, now he, yeah. he is a Navi, and um, he's been living as a Navi for the last decade. He has yeah. some children. Yeah. Uh, there are some ancillary children around on Pandora. There's yeah. a human child uh, named Spider who grew yeah. up among the... There's human labs still doing some benevolent study, and so yeah. this but appara- Apparently well-stocked that. labs with lots of oxygen and food. Well, it's the future. I'm sure they have the technology. I guess. They, it's, yeah. just, it's just interesting that they left, like, two guys behind and, like, yeah, I don't know, man. That's... I don't, I, well, also, I, it's it's incredibly verdant. There might be local, like, food that they can eat. I don't know, man. The, way, the air kills you. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure how much I trust the, the, the local wildlife not to as well. Uh, Pandora definitely doesn't want humans there. No. I think no, that's no, that's it's, definitely it's clear. Hostile. And, indeed, and the, indeed, one thing they talk about in this one is how... It takes ten years, but humans come back. Hmm. That's the big inciting incident. Like Jake and Neytiri, they have they have a bunch of kids, uh, one of whom uh, was born. And we're going to talk about a lot of the movie, by the way. Mm. So if you're at the point where you don't want to hear anything about the movie, now is the time to go. But we're going to talk about a lot. We'll try not to spoil the ending, but we're, we're going to talk mm. about a lot of it. Um, one of their kids is adopted, and it was actually the child of Sigourney Weaver's avatar. Mm. She died in the first movie. Her avatar has been basically in like a giant test tube uh-huh. ever since and then one day they just found out it was pregnant and it gave birth and now they're raising this kid who's uh-huh. now played by motion capture by Sigourney Weaver she's playing a teenager in the movie yeah, she's, she's good by the way Sigourney Weaver is, is 72 and she's playing yeah. a teenager and, and, it, um... and it, it's not altogether unconvincing 
No, she she does a wonderful really job. Like it, yeah. it, it, it's never like that's clearly a, yeah. an adult woman playing this teenage. No, kid. She's, no she's, she's killing it. She's great. Yeah. Um, but there's this one scene at the beginning of the movie where the kids are talking. They're like uh, the Sigourney Weaver teenager character hmm. uh, sees her Kiri mom. In a, yeah, Kiri. Kiri right. sees like her mom, the Avatar, in like her big aquatic, you know, yeah. tank. And she says, hi, mom. Aww. And it's you realize what a weird relationship you have to have <laughs> with your birth mother. That, how unusual that is. And then all of her teenager friends are talking about how, yeah, I'll bet this one scientist guy probably had sex with her. And I'm like, uh, I don't think this is a fun well, conversation right now. There's speculation as to, uh, as to her parenting. I agree with yeah. that. But some of the theories they have are just creepy. And maybe we shouldn't have brought it up. <laughs> because we're not going to go there, and it seems pretty clear to me that well, that's a, not what happened. There's a character played by Joel David Moore, who yeah. uh, we see him in human and in Navi form uh, yeah. in, in both movies. And yeah, yeah, they, they speculated that when they were in their Navi bodies, yeah, they, they had, were able they'd to have experimented. A child. Yeah. yeah, but it's just the way that they phrase it makes it sound really yeah. creepy and wrong. But yeah, in any yeah. case, so they got all these kids, and then the humans show up again well, ten years it's, later. It's significant, I, and I actually really like this about the way mm. of water. Um, yeah. Jake Sully, played by Sam Worthington uh, in uh-huh. the 2009 film, mm. is is a shallow, uninteresting character. Yes, he's he uh, some people have said it this way that he begins the film as this sort of like tough military jarhead, and he ends the film also still just a tough military jarhead. Yeah, he's just doing it for the, the, the right now. side. Yeah, yeah, for the right side. He's doing it for more righteous reasons, but he's yeah. still just fighting. Yeah, flying around on dragons and firing weapons. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in this one. He's still a jarhead, and now uh, the people around him find that a little bit tiresome. Yeah, like that is not a virtue for him any yeah. longer. No, I actually, I actually do appreciate that. It, one of the things that makes the first Avatar uh, kind of frustrating for me is this idea that Jake Sully is so this, like an average man. It, well, yeah. it's not even that he's average; it's that he's it's, it's he isn't. He's actually treated like a chosen one. He like is able to accomplish all of these things that people uh, of the Navi mm-hmm. spend their whole lives uh, trying to do. Like, oh, no one has ever tamed the great the, the dragon. dragon. Yeah. And, like, he can do it in one day. And, like, he gets to speak to, like, the the, the, the being in the planet and it listens to him and it never listens to anyone. He's basically a chosen one. Yeah. And he's basically, you know, even though he's not from there, thank God this white guy showed up. Because without him, everything would have been a mess and we wouldn't have been able to save the planet. And then he has elected their leader and everything's great. And that comes across as so childish as a fantasy, let alone racist. In this one, uh, he's he's a fuck up. He's pretty consistently, like he can fight. But other than that, he is a massive fuck up, and that is incredibly humanizing. It's, it's hum- and we it, desperately needed it's that. It's humanizing. It's a great story choice. Yeah. Uh, even his kids kind of resent him a little bit because yeah. they call him sir, and he treats them like they're his soldier children. And yeah. It's like, and they they don't appreciate that about their father. No, like it, they listen to him, but they don't. There's no warmth there. He's not, not like really, a, he's no. not like a warm, loving dad. He's just no. sort of like, and the, the near the end of the film, he sort of has this sort of I am the paterfamilias kind of moment it's like he this is all he has now it's like i, I all i know how to do is sort of fight and just fighting for my family that's yeah what I'm that's gonna do that's now. what it, that's what it, my like, idea of a dad is a guy who fights for his family and that's yeah. what i have to do constantly and so, so 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 is there a version of this where you're not fighting yeah <laughs> well i mean granted they're they the humans show up and unlike the last movie where it was all about unobtainium this huge macguffin and we never even found out what the fuck it did 
There's Which, a, a rare mineral yeah. on, on Pandora. And they say it's super expensive, but they don't explain why. Which is they, they don't even say like it's something rich people want. It's like diamonds. It like, could be that. Are, they, if, if, if they had said just that much, that would have been enough. But there's no ex- the, explanatory the, line of The thing with the MacGuffin, and it's something that you know we talk about a lot. It's a very familiar uh, storytelling term. A MacGuffin is a plot point that is super important to the characters, but kind of irrelevant to the audience. It, it's uh, something that motivates the story. Yeah, it gets it the characters really out of the house. The, the details of what it is, the, yeah. what matters is that the characters in the movie are motivated by it. Exactly. It gets them out of the house. It gets the action in place so that the audience can see them do interesting things. But it really could have been anything. Mm-hmm. It could have been money. It could have been diamonds. It could have been drugs. It doesn't really matter. Um, some movies are rather playful with this. If you've ever seen the John Frankenheimer movie Ronin, uh, is about a whole bunch of professional thieves played by a really amazing uh, ca- ensemble cast of actors, and they're all after what's in this big case, mm. and we never find out what's in it because in that movie it's irrelevant. Yeah. Problem is that if it's not something relatively simple, like what's in there, I don't know, probably money or mm. top secret plans or something. We can probably wrap our heads around something that's value that yeah. that the audience can relate to. If, if you make it something weird, we need to know why it's important. Because yeah. if it's money, we understand why it's important. And the thing is, money is fine as a justification, but in Avatar, all of the incidental stuff around it makes that less interesting. Because you're coming here to make money. You spent billions of dollars to get here. You didn't have to do that. You could have just saved the money, and then you yeah, had they, the money. You you spent actually, billions of dollars. They don't and explain it's, really what the uh, yeah. Well, and this is another frustrating thing. Yeah. They don't really explain the economics of a yeah. future Earth. Uh, they don't explain what unobtainium does. What are what the values for, of humanity? Um, like again, you have you spent yeah. years developing these avatars just to get this unobtainium. It can't just be about money. There has to be. At the very least, a justification for why it is so valuable, because uh, because that's a lot of effort. It doesn't track. Well, the the point being, we actually don't know how much effort it is. They don't say it's really, really difficult to make an Avi body, because they actually make a lot more in this sequel. Well, then the sequel Uh, they do, and the implication of this one is that it took... Well, because remember, the reason why Jake... They needed uh, Jake Sully because his twin brother... Yeah, uh, because they'd spent, like, a lot of money on this thing. Yeah, had... had, Yeah. It was his Avatar body, and... uh, Jake Sully because he had the same DNA. Yeah, because he was a twin. Could occupy it as yeah. well. The, uh, the, the, the thing that makes that whole plot fall apart like a house of cards for me is there's a line that Giovanni Ribisi says uh, where he says, those Navi, the ones that we're trying to infiltrate in the mm-hmm. movie, uh, are sitting on the largest deposit of unattainium in 40 clicks, or like 100 clicks. Uh, mm-hmm. A click is a kilometer, and it's very clear throughout the movie that that's how they're referring to it. Yeah. Because we see them refer to other units of distance the same way. That means that there is another comparable deposit of unobtainium like an hour's drive away. <laughs> and they don't explain why they I, can't get to just it. Just go to that. Even else. if you have to come back to this one later. Why aren't you doing that one first? Not what are good. you wasting your time for here? Not it makes gonna... no, If all you care about is money, there are better ways to make it. If you care about something other than money, hmm. there might be a justification for why this is so important to do it this way. That's the reason why that falls apart. So even though it's a MacGuffin and it's not supposed to matter, the way you frame all the context around it, unfortunately, accidentally makes it matter. In this one, they never say the word unobtainium once. It's not important anymore. Uh, there, there is a new uh, like 
magical coveted substance yeah. in this one, and uh, it has to do with whaling. It's actually yeah. a, like a rare kind of whale oil in this movie. Yeah. Uh, but they at least there's a line of dialogue where they explain what it yeah. does and why it's valuable. Well, and they also uh, say uh, there's there's a new character played by Edie Falco, mm-hmm. who's like the leader of the. She's the new Miles Quaritch of this movie, mm-hmm. even though Miles Quaritch is back. We'll talk about that in a second. That's the um, Stephen Lang character. Yeah, the main villain from the previous film. Um, she says just flat out. We're, we're going to colonize Pandora. Earth is dying and we're going to colonize Pandora. Which, which honestly, and, uh, should have been the thing in the first place. And it, and it, it really would have made a lot more sense. And it looks sense. like a ter- Yeah, the humans come back and they, they blow up a big portion of, of Pandora. Like, they set like, a, for- a whole forest on fire. Yeah, right? we are here and, and we uh, are not fucking around anymore. And I'm guessing this is also something that's terraforming because people are walking around without helmets on. They're sort of, they can breathe the air in this little area. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Quaritch, this character, Colonel Quaritch is back. He's played by Stephen Lang. But his uh, consciousness was uploaded into a computer system. Just before the final Gen- mission in Avatar. Yeah, yeah. So, so they had his brain on file except for his death. And they put it into a Navi body, so uh-huh. now the bad guy is also a Navi. Which uh, is, I'm actually totally fine with. I mean, yeah, it's, no, it's, it's a fine. It's, it, it's, it's good narrative conceit. It's uh, like clearly just an excuse to get him back, sure, like the same actor who, who you killed. But A, Stephen Lang is a great actor. Yeah. Uh, B, that makes sense given the context. Like, that's a clever use of the technology you've already introduced. Well, and, and this idea that um, yeah. of, of Jake Sully being sort of like this carefully chosen avatar like, like only special. only only he can go in and then we learn oh wait a minute he's actually not so special because even the bad guy can just sort of do it on a whim yeah it turns I out think, he has to go through like some of the same stuff uh, jake yeah. did in the first movie but he does it just fine <laughs> like, I, I think <laughs> well and, and i think a lot of that takes a, the curse off of a lot of the the chosen one narrative from the first movie a little bit i still uh, think the tone is there but you're right plot yeah. wise it's a little bit under it's in, a little in terms bit of, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it's it's not in a very sophisticated way, but at least it's like covering for some of the errors of the first movie. Yeah, and actually, uh, anyway, uh, and and also we find out, and this is uh, clear at the beginning, uh, that Spider, the kid, uh, the human kid, who was stuck on Pandora because apparently babies can't be uh, put in cryo sleep. Yeah, uh, which is obviously a plot device to get that kid there, but whatever. Um, it turns out he was actually Quaritch's kid. Yeah, uh, we find this out right at the beginning. Uh, and so Spider, after a big action sequence, is captured by the bad guys, and he ends up spending a lot of time with his avatar dad, and they form basically an interesting sort of version of, hey, remember Aliens? Well, now the Marines are definitely the bad guys. <laughs> yeah, Aliens, you think they're the good guys, but they're really not. Um, no, I mean, they're maybe better than the bad guys, but I, I not find, much. I find it very... Uh, here's another irony, is that... Yeah. Um, James Cameron is using this, not only using the technology to create uh, the natural world, but in his movies, machines, uh, robots, the military, the mm. ones with weapons, uh, however cool they look in yeah. his movies, and they usually look pretty cool. They got these big uh, yeah, weapons. Wonderfully robots, well designed, skeleton, yeah. Skeleton monsters and all these cool things. Um, they're invariably evil. Yeah. Cops and military beings and colonialists are depicted as incredibly bad. Yeah. Uh, even in Avatar, when it's really awkward, he it is he is trying to tell yeah. an anti-colonialist story, even yeah. though it's based in colonialist fantasy. He's yeah, it's really, an irony I wish he was aware of. He's trying real yeah. hard to sort of undo that. I feel like The Way of Water does it a little better. Oh, it does. Uh, I think and, I will say this. I think this is a lot better than the original Avatar. Oh, yeah. I, I still have problems with it, but I still think it's a lot better. Yeah. 
But uh, the basic story is uh, the, the bad guys are here. They're looking for Jake Sully for reasons of revenge. Basically. And, uh, after a, a, a period of fighting, uh, Jake Sully has to take Natiri and his kids away uh, from the the yeah. Avatar village he, they know. And he, he realizes ends up falling in with yeah. uh, uh, an archipelago mm. of water-dwelling Navi, yeah, uh, he, a faraway tribe. Yeah, Jake realizes that they're not just after the Navi, they're after him. Hmm. A, as revenge, but B, they see him as the leader of the Navi resistance, and if we kill him, maybe the Navi will be less formidable an opponent and will be able to walk all over the planet more easily. So Quaritch and his team of Jarhead avatars are out to basically kill Jake. Mm-hmm. They're trying to get on Spider's good side so he'll betray Jake and tell them all their all their secrets. Meanwhile, the, the, Jake the, and Jake and Neytiri know that Spider has been taken. They know that he's a kid. They can't trust him not to say anything. So they flee. And they flee not, to this... Not, not because he's untrustworthy, but because no, no. he's young. And yeah. I actually like the yeah. the relationship between Quaritch and Spider because yeah. Spider knows Quaritch is bad. Yeah. And doesn't, but he also knows that he's his father yeah that's but actually he's kind of a like a noble kid so yeah. he's actually trying to be really open-minded he's trying to he's trying to work within both worlds and in fact actually this is the thing that i think gives this movie more of an interesting emotional core hmm. than the original avatar which i found its emotional core to be very superficial um this is a movie especially especially comes into play once spider is with quaritch and the sully family is has moved to uh-huh. this uh, new island where the, they're still Navi, but they've evolved a little differently. They have more fins. Their their tails are flatter. They can swim longer. They can hold their breath longer. They have become uh, much as the Navi were uh, able to evolve alongside their sort of forest surroundings. They have evolved alongside their aquatic surroundings. Mm-hmm. Um, from that point on, Jake takes a backseat for most of the movie. And in fact, unfortunately, so, the kids, and unfortunately yeah. so does Neytiri. And I think that sucks. Uh, because she, you have something for Neytiri? I think she's not an uninteresting character. And I think she takes oh, okay. a backseat for basically three whole fucking hours. And I think you had a lot of time. You could have given her something more to do. That's oh. all I'm saying. All right. um, but um, there, there was real estate. That's all, right. all I'm saying. There's sure. plenty of real estate to film. They could have given her more to do. And I don't think she, I don't think they did a good job. But, um, but yeah, once they get there, it's not so much about Jake and his responsibility. It's more about these kids learning to uh, learning to adapt to, yeah. to a new culture. They, they've, they've moved. It's basically inside out. We moved to San Francisco and they put broccoli on pizza and we need to figure out how the hell this works. <laughs> um, but they're also kids. They're adolescent. They're going through, you know, first crushes, you know, bullies, typical kid stuff. A lot of it, at least, mm. at least in its construct, the service elements are very fantastical. But they're also trying to navigate the fact that they're they come from a variety of different worlds. Mm. You know, their father is part human, ostensibly human, but his body is you know it's it's complicated. But he's his father is raising them in a more human way. Yeah, their mother is raising them in a more Navi way, and now here they are, and they're expected to assimilate into a very different world from which they were raised. Mm. And it turns out that whereas Jake and Neytiri can kind of get by here, the kids are way more plastic. They're actually able to embrace this new uh, perspective of their connection with nature, this more aquatic perspective. And in many respects, they flower. Mm. You know, they, they, they bloom, they blossom in this environment. And even though a lot of the tropes that they use to get the kids to these sort of coming of age moments are, yeah, they're teen movie tropes. <laughs> yeah. The bullies, the I, first again, love, we're, we're, the we're, secret, the secret 
we're not, space not, whale crush. Not dealing crush. with a, a yeah. filmmaker who deals in like really complex emotional states. No. This is not Mike Lee. This is no. <laughs> but it's a but it's more effective. And I was yeah. more it was more emotionally invested in the characters well, because the... it was more about hmm. kids adapting than a guy adapting for shitty colonialist reasons. Yeah, there's you know? uh, also going going back to the original Avatar. It's set, set in uh, the forests of Pandora. Yeah, and there's all these. Uh, Shots of them like leaping across these uh, logs that are covered with moss that light up when you step on them. There's a lot of luminescent plants yeah. and animals. It's and, Tarzan uh, on acid, basically. Yeah, yeah, and and it's it's really gorgeous, but it feels like uh, like a fantasy landscape. Yeah, like something out of a storybook, and a lot yeah. of people like that. Yeah, um, it's an aesthetic. What I like about the uh, the creature-filled lagoons of the way of water is... It doesn't feel like a fantasy landscape. It feels like an alien world. It feels like an ecosystem. Yeah. Like, there's yeah. A, like I understand how these things biome, interact. I understand the... And, yeah. there, it feel, and because the special effects have advanced so much, it's so much more tactical now. Or tactile. Tactile. Now. Yeah, not, about, not yeah. tactical. <laughs> it's tactile now. Like, you, can, yeah. you actually... You can almost feel the warmth of the water around you. It really, yeah. It's really just... Dazzling. Once they get uh, to the to the to the water uh, uh, community, hmm. once they get to that island, the movie slows the fuck down. Like the first hour is just trying to get you there as fast as it can, and it's got way too much ground to cover, and it takes too long. Once you're there, the movie slows remember, down. Remember the train heist that happened real fast? Oh, fuck, I scene? forgot about the train heist. a train heist in, Holy that, shit. in that sequence like, as But, well. like, yeah, once they get to this island, the movie slows down, yeah. and it's wise to do so because you doesn't matter the plot doesn't matter for a while we just kind of want to just enjoy it because mm. it's very pretty uh when you get down into the water there's a lot of really interesting sea life and very beautiful and mm. um yeah i never really got that from the first avatar like oh i know people like oh i just want to live there and i'm like yeah. it's new zealand but some of the plants glow like i'm not as <laughs> astounded by this as maybe i should be james cameron lives in new zealand now by the way good for him it's yeah. beautiful there i have nothing against new zealand i'd love to live in new zealand i'm just saying you can go <laughs> like but and indeed there's a lot of really amazing <coughs> things that happen underwater but there's definitely this more fantastical uh, uh approach he has to filming the water it's it's almost as if he really likes being underwater he does um it's very very pretty it's, it's yeah. a pretty thing to look at, the middle chunk of this movie, when yeah, everything is kind of cool and the kids are just enjoying hanging out on the beach and meeting super whales. Uh, the, and the super whales are a new wrinkle, and I like the yeah. super whales. The super but, whales uh, kick ass. Uh, there's some uh, 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 a species of intelligent super whales yeah. that lives in the oceans of Pandora. And, and not just like intelligent like our whales are, which is like legitimately intelligent, but like so intelligent they can talk to you and indeed they have subtitles. They have subtitles. Still Papyrus, by the way. <laughs> we have not <laughs> moved on from Papyrus. Sticking with it. This is the one thing Sticking we're going to cheap out on is the font <laughs> of all the fucking things. You just, what was it? You ever see that Ryan Gosling bit on Saturday Night Live? Oh, it's called Papyrus. Yeah, it's yeah. just him, like, just as, like, it's a conspiracy theory. James Cameron wrote the most expensive movie ever made. And then he just went down to the font section on Microsoft Word and then <laughs> just the picked something at random. Papyrus. <laughs> uh, Always makes me yeah, laugh. The, yeah. and, and the whales will uh, be an important plot point throughout the second half of the movie and will uh, yeah. instigate a lot of the, the big fights once the jarheads catch up, because inevitably they will. Yeah. Uh, that whole middle section. Yeah. Where they're just sort of living with the ocean Navi. Yeah. And uh, sort of learning their ways. And learning learning to assimilate is great because uh, yeah. the parents are actually really nervous about 
yeah. upsetting their hosts who have taken them in. Yeah. The kids are a little bit more cavalier about well, it. Well, more they they actually have to like listen, we have to get used to this. We have to yeah. like this isn't but, about like just moving here for a while like some of this the, is our yeah, life, you know. Some of the kids adapt better than others. Yeah. Some are tougher, some are uh, a little bit more gentle. Yeah. There's one wonderful shot of uh Kiri, the teenage yeah. uh, Sigourney Weaver character. Uh she's just she's in very shallow water. Just sort of floating in this really shallow water, and uh, her elbows are bent, and she has her fingers in the sand underneath yeah. the water, and that's like the one of the most impressive shots in the movie. For yeah, because that is something you can really see and feel. Yeah, everything just looks unbelievably real and gorgeous in that it's one little moment. Very beautiful. This is yeah. this is I I and this has been a good year for animation. I think this is the prettiest animated movie we've had. So far yeah, this year. yeah, um, yeah. It's just very the, little live action in this film. Very very little. Uh, yeah, it's and usually surrounded by other animation when it is. Yeah. Um. It's it's very very attractive. Like uh, Edie Falco, you mentioned. Uh, yeah. She spends a lot of the movie in this sort of like robot stilt suit, which gives yeah. her like long arms and long legs, and just so she can be at like eye level with the with the way avatars, with yeah. the avatar characters, and yeah. she may as well be animated. I'm sure she's yeah. in there somewhere. Oh no, she is. Yeah. But like it's um, uh, Edie Falco made this so like her scenes were shot so long ago uh-huh. that she didn't realize it hadn't been released yet. <laughs> It's like, yeah, I'm going to do this Avatar thing. She filmed it like four years ago. She thought yeah. it like sort of came and went and nobody ta- told her about it. <laughs> so it's finally, oh, that That's thing, funny. shot that thing like f- five years ago. There's a little detail with her character that made me laugh where, um, much like Miles Quartz in the original, almost every time you see her, she has a mug of coffee. <laughs> Even if it makes no sense. Like, oh, we're, we're flying into battle and she's just got an unsecured mug of, not even a travel mug, mm. just just like a world's greatest grandpa mug. It's a, it's a good villain trope. They're it, doing something kind of casual. When yeah, well, doing something doing evil. Destruction, but yeah. the thing is, is that I don't know. I know enough about how like vehicles work, <laughs> like that. I wouldn't trust that in like a Ford Contour. I'm not definitely not trusting it in a ship that's going to go into battle. That at least is going to get some spillage. Okay. And I just have this theory, this head cannon, where the reason they're doing that is because the coffee is just extra good on Pandora, and that's the real reason why we're going. There you go. It's, like it's, the coffee just grows it, great it, here. It's like Captain Sisko and his Rock to Gino's on there Space. Nine. He yeah. needs to have that Klingon coffee. So glad you brought it back to Star Trek. Anyway, uh, the the kids are doing kid stuff, and there's a super mm. well that one of the kids bonds with. All that stuff's very very cool, and uh, it ultimately culminates in an anti whaling narrative because it mm. turns out that humans have been hunting these whales. These whales have like really valuable stuff on them, and the kids have to save the whales. And the, this leads to, and I I really just have to give it up to Cameron for some of the most incredible pacing I've seen this year because I think the first half is too the first third is way too rushed. Second half slows it down real good, thank God. First half is still too rushed, but once we get second half it's great. When the final action sequence starts is probably a lot earlier than you realize. Mm-hmm. Because once the shit starts hitting the fan, it will continue to hit that fan for about an hour. Yeah. And it will constantly the the situations in which the people find themselves, life and death, action sequences, locales, machinery involved, animals involved, uh, the time of day changes dramatically, um, happens so organically that it you you for you do, it takes you a while to realize oh wait no we're in the third act and we have been for a while <laughs> like this is yeah. just it's, it's the- like in Titanic where like everything's going fine everything's going fine. We hit the iceberg, but it's not like the ship suddenly explodes. Hmm. From that point on, everything just gradually gets worse at such a steady clip. But because we have so much time left in the movie, 
it's like you don't even fully realize when things went to pure chaos. <laughs> and it's yeah, glorious. Yeah. It's great. So it's a really amazing final action sequence. Like lots of different well, layers, crab we, robots, and the, all kinds the, of cool the, the shit happen. The crab robots are really cool. I love There's, those robots. Uh, just, uh, again, uh, it's it's odd that the military is the bad guys when he's clearly very interested in all this like weird vehicle fetish stuff. I know. It's really ironic. He's either unaware of it uh, or yeah. he just is so keen on the vehicles that he can't help himself. I, I think he's intrigued because, you know, he works in when he does his underwater stuff, mm. you know, with high technology, you know, these incredibly yeah. like um, these gorgeous submarines that they create now that you can submerge yourself in. They look these beautiful plastic bubbles. They look like sci-fi. Yeah, what we use now to try to explore underwater, I and mean, we're using all these little drones and things. And I think he sees future technology, perhaps as neutral. Mm. It all depends on who's using it. Like okay. Jake is a Navi, and he's heroic theoretically, uh, but even though the technology is used to create evil avatars as well, so I think he just thinks the technology is neat. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think he he interrogates enough the way he fetishizes it mm. when it's in the hands of bad guys. Yeah. And I think it sometimes undermines the message he's trying to make. And I think you're right about that. He's trying to say that the military is bad, but he's also trying to say that all the shit they do is cool. <laughs> and it's, yeah. it's not great. Oh, it's, it's, it's not, not you know, yeah. what? it's not great. But then I think of the way um, a, a filmmaker like uh, Michael Bay yeah. just like, Outwardly fetishizes the military yes, in a, in a very, 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 uh, very effusive kind of a way, well, and yeah, <laughs> James Cameron at least is like trying to say something while he's doing his while he's making them look maybe a little too cool. Like Michael Bay would like fetishize the tech, but he would also have a shot of like Miles Quaritch or even Jake Sully like walking in slow mo in front of an American flag yeah, yeah, yeah. that's being like that's like put right in front of the sun so the sun's like Filtering shining through it. it and it's this sort of thing where it's just like this looks like it's Michael Bay will make a recruitment video. Mm. James Cameron doesn't make recruitment videos and I'll give him credit for that, but he comes close sometimes and it's weird. Yeah. Because mm. it's clearly not narratively or thematically what he's going for. That's but it's still make it look cool. That, that's kind of an issue with aliens. Yes, uh, it is. Because those are supposed to be characters who are out outdone by their hubris. Yes. They're very confident. They think they can take these monsters, and the monsters mm. kill them anyway. Exactly. Uh, but while we're getting to know them, they seem kind of affable yeah, and likable characters. They're, they're, they're they shouldn't be. They should be really spiky and, and yeah. off-putting characters. You, you, don't want, you don't want to maybe hate them too much because you do want to care when they live or die. You don't just want to wait for them to be killed off. Mm. But I think he goes so far into making them likable that... Yeah, it, it kind of messes with the movie mm. a little bit. And I still think Aliens is really, really great. But there's parts of it that do not work. Mm. Jeanette Goldstein should not be playing Vasquez. <laughs> that, that's just offensive. That should never have happened. But even beyond that, even if you think of it like a Vietnam allegory, which it is. Mm. Um, it's, not, it's not very no, flattering no, to people no. on the other side of that conflict, is it? It's kind of really dehumanizing, <laughs> literally. Um, there's, there are attitudes espoused in that movie that are weird. Yeah, yeah. There's well, also really great shit in that movie, but like it's, it's something uh, maybe we need to re-examine a little bit more carefully. I think. I, th I think uh, a lot of people uh, like the film just because of sort of the tension and the action. Yeah. Uh, without really interrogating how we're supposed to feel about those those military characters. I think it's interesting that he wrote that around the same time that he wrote Rambo: First Blood Part Two. Mm. And indeed, uh, I believe the story goes he had a choice of which film he wanted to direct. Uh, and he chose. And he chose Aliens, Aliens which I think was okay. a smart play, but. Regardless, Rambo First Blood Part 2 is an incredibly jingoistic script. Mm. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, even though it uh, even though it purports at times to have the emotional depth of the original, it does not. It is what? a much more celebratory. Uh, uh, even though there are bad guys in the military, there's elements of that script which are just un just uncategorically hmm. jingoistic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was at an interesting place at that point, and I would love to interview him about those two scripts in particular because <laughs> those were your military scripts. Yeah. yeah. And those have interesting ideas about the military that I don't know how well you've, I'd love, you've, you've I'd thought about. I'd love to have a conversation with yeah. him about how he feels about the military. Yeah. Because he, he alternate, alternately uh, vilifies and lionizes them. Uh, and that's yeah. e- even true in The Way of Water. Yeah. Uh, I'm frustrated but, uh, because I, he's such a technical filmmaker. I feel like most people ask him about the tech. And I'm like, I really want to talk to him about his themes. His, his ideas. And, yeah. Uh, the, the ideas in The Way of Water aren't terribly sophisticated. He's just no. not that kind of a filmmaker. But the tech is impeccable. Yeah. Uh, that climax where it like it stops in the middle so we can have a sundown, a sundown and a sunup. And, mm-hmm. and uh, the character's position can change dramatically. And yet, unlike uh, so many of these action blockbusters that are really effects-based from the last decade, mm-hmm. uh, it's not tiring. No. Uh, no, it's amazing, I, 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 actually. I can, I can, I can watch is brilliant a, a climax that's, you know, you know, 15, 20 minutes, that's kind of standard mm-hmm. for a lot of, like, your, your average Marvel film. Yeah, give or take. And those are just, you're just waiting for them to end. Yeah. They're, well, they're rarely exciting. It's just a lot of, like, CGI noise. Well, one of the... I, I, yeah. I will scream the next time I see somebody get knocked back by some sort of superhero blast. Yeah. And they drag along the floor backwards for a little bit, oh, digging, so cool. digging their fingers into the ground to stop themselves from dragging yeah. backward. It means nothing. Ugh, I hate that shit. What, stop what, it. What's one of, he, he knows that there's a couple of things you have to do uh-huh. in an extended action sequences, and that's one, keep it visually interesting. Change the dynamics, change mm-hmm. the location, change the nature of the threat. But what he does best here, and what I think makes it so that no matter what is happening on screen, and most of it's cool, um, what keeps you invested is too many action movies today conclude the narrative and the Um. character arcs, but then there's one last action sequence. Like, oh, I have finally, I have achieved my goals, I have come to a catharsis, and now it is time to fight the bad guy. No! (laughs) While you fight the bad guy. The, the you, fight needs to provide the catharsis. Yeah, the fight needs to be part of the character's journey, not the exclamation point at the end. Mm. You can maybe do that for a punch. I, I finally realize that I, I need to get over my bullshit or whatever the fuck it is, and this last punch is representative of me coming at the end of my journey. Yeah. yeah. If the whole action sequence is, emotionally the story's over. Yeah. We're done. This is all just filler now. The action sequences that are going on in the last hour or so of Avatar The Way of Water involve multiple characters going through multiple emotional states and actually changing his characters over the course of the day. <laughs> and that, again, even if even if you're not interested in the rest of the context of it, that makes the pacing great. Hmm. That makes that entire sequence like is pre- character work like, going even on. Even if because I'm really mixed on the story and the storytelling here, I don't. Okay. I think some of it is more interesting. I think it's all more interesting, but I think some of it's clunky, some of it's rushed, some of it's too slow. But that last hour is fucking amazing. <laughs> it's just genuinely amazing. the The only other thing that we haven't really talked about, I think, in in meaningful detail, and there's minutia that we could get into, but what's the point? Um. Visually, this movie is doing two distinct things 
uh, in addition to just being full of CGI. One is it's in 3D, and I'll say this for James Cameron. He knows that there is light loss in your 3D glasses, and you need to pump up the brightness mm. so that it doesn't so feel like you're looking at everything through sunglasses, it, and it he, looks really good. It's visually clear. He knows how yeah. to film things in 3D. Yeah, I didn't necessarily need it to, it to be in 3D to appreciate it, but he knows how to light 3D correctly, and thank God, thank God for that. Um, the other thing is some of it is shot in a high frame rate. Hmm. certain shots not yeah not not, not, not in, whole scenes not like in whole scenes sometimes it's just yeah. shots and unfortunately this leads to an effect when the shift occurs especially when there's a lot of action on screen mm. of everything moving really unrealistically fast for a few seconds well it doesn't move it doesn't move fast it looks like it it has a a a, a a clarity of smoothness uh-huh. that we are unused to in cinema agree and uh and this is this is a technical thing. Yeah, it is. Uh, and I feel like we've we've reached an inflection point. Mm. Uh, some filmmakers have been trying to push the idea of high frame rates uh, for mm. a while. And, uh, and if you're Peter, on, if you're on, if you know what we're talking about, we, most films are shot at 24 frames per mm. second, where you see 24 images over the course of one second of time, and that gives the illusion of movement. We didn't have to pick 24 seconds. It was the most practical. Well, what, uh, amount of, of film we could use at the dawn of sound yeah. what that would allow was, us to yeah. uh, when because, you need uh, yeah when, when, uh, during the uh, pioneering of sync sound mm-hmm. there needed to be a standard frame rate because mm-hmm. uh, the sound couldn't change yeah it, it needs to, to be, be running at a constant speed and the, yeah. the most could be no, no... cost effective frame rate mm-hmm. that studios came up with was 24 frames yeah. that's as few as they could get away with yeah less than that it starts yeah. looking pretty fake yeah. 24 is the sweet spot uh they could have chosen more and it would have been an even smoother rate of action and maybe we would have gotten used to it by now but now there's so many frames in something like avatar or um uh, the hobbit yeah, Unexpected Journey. Frame, right? There's so many frames in it that it really does change the overall aesthetic of it. Mm-hmm. It makes everything look very crisp. Everything is much more detailed. There's, yeah. uh, there's no blur. And yeah. the issue that that has arisen is actually with digital projection. Uh, the projectors that we're using these days can now handle so much more information. Mm-hmm. Uh, to the point where when they're showing at 24 frames a second, they're having trouble approximating that old flicker of a 35 millimeter film projector. Uh, And it's creating what is called judder. Mm. Uh, It's, I I guess it's a a portmanteau of jitter and shutter uh, where if a camera pans, the image kind of jerks around a little bit. Our eyes are used to that. Yeah. We kind of got used to that's something like if uh, something pans across, but it's starting to become a lot more pronounced with uh, more and more advanced projectors. So yeah. uh, in order to fill in that jerky information, the best solution is just to add more frames. Yeah. It's just put more information on the screen so the projectors can handle it. That's yeah, what they used to do The projections are looking to add information. There's, It feels like there's something yeah. missing. They used to do this with um, with colors back before we had uh, more sophisticated digital projectors. Mm. They used to not handle the color black very well. Yeah, because there's always particles yeah. floating in the black. In, in, an, in a film projector, one that projects actual film, black is no light. Hmm. So it's, it's just blacked off. So it reads yeah. as really black. It's there's nothing there. But in a digital projector, they're projecting the color black, and just black was confusing to those projectors, and they wanted to put something there. So you got what would sometimes be called crush, and that was basically you would look into the black, and you'd realize it's not actually black. It's got some color going on in yeah. there, a little digital artifacting or something. And um, a lot of filmmakers didn't know how to work with that. Yeah, and, and yeah, it's gotten better. 
And but, there are filmmakers yeah. who try to push the technology, even when it looks like shit. Yeah. Um, there was, I, I recall very sharply the experience of watching Star Wars Episode Two. Mm. Uh, like that movie came out in like 2002. Uh, um, yeah, I think so, yeah. Uh, it, it was one of the first big movies uh, mm. to be presented in digital projection. Yeah. That was kind of a novelty in 2002. Yeah, it, on mass anyway. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, other films. The first film I saw... What was the first film I saw that was digital? I think Ocean's Time Eleven code. might have been okay. the first one I saw projected mm. digitally. Not shot digitally. Yeah, a lot of movies um, shot digitally. Yeah. Um, yeah, and there, there was a, a movement to sort of try out new digital cameras. Danny Boyle mm. did a lot of it. Mike Figgis. Um, mm. Michael Mann. Yeah, Michael Mann. Michael Mann uh, embraced it really quick, actually. Yeah, yeah uh, he did digital, even when it didn't look good. Like, yeah. uh, Public Enemies looks like crap. It really does. Uh, it's just like, such bad digital photography in yeah. that movie. Uh, but uh, George Lucas knew this was going to be the future, or at least he wanted it to be. Yeah. So he said, I'm going to make a Star Wars movie. Biggest thing of all time, and I'm going to have it be digital projecting, and it looked, gar- looked like garbage. Everyone says yeah. it'll never catch on. Well, it did. It, 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 it did. And in yeah. fact, uh, in 2008, a lot of theaters started selling off their projectors, like their film projectors, and replacing them with digital. Mm-hmm. And by 2011, uh, most film projectors were gone. Mm-hmm. It was like this earnest push just to turn everything digitally finally by 2011. Mm-hmm. I feel like we're at that inflection point with high frame rates now, with The Way of Water. I think mm-hmm. it didn't look good with The Hobbit. Yeah. It didn't look good with whenever Ong Lee tried to do it because he mm-hmm. did it multiple times. Um, did you ever see Gemini Man? I missed it, no. Yeah, uh, it, and the issue with high frame rates is it was a frame rate chosen to do other media. Yeah. Not film. Film was 24 frames, but when it came to news broadcasts, or f- sports, uh, high, sporting events, or um, video games. Yeah. Those are really high frame rates. Exactly. Uh, video games, I think, go by 60 frame rates on I believe that's now, the case, on, yeah. On some of like, the newer uh, high-end video yeah. games. Uh, so people started associating that smoothness, that look, mm-hmm. with not film. Yeah. In fact, with uh, specifically with live sporting events or with video games. Yeah, it's, so it's an it, aesthetic that is something else. Yeah, yeah so uh, when filmmakers tried to put that into cinema, it to a lot of eyes, even it looked a lot cheaper. It looked like something it less, less than. Yeah. Um, I feel like there's the technology has advanced to the point I've seen it kind of grow over the course of the last couple of years mm-hmm. where it you, you might still hate it. It's not a look ne- that people are necessarily going to jive with. Right. But it looks better. It looks better. They're, I still think there's problems. smoothing it out a little bit. And I feel yeah. like there are certain shots where it simply looks like more realistic movement Mm -hmm. rather than a weird smoothed out movement. I think too often it looks like a weird smoothed out moment and I'm nervous that we're going to get what happened when Avatar 1 came out Mm -hmm. which is a lot of people trying to copy the gimmicky visual quality of its success through haphazard use of 3D. And it really didn't do 3D any favors and it didn't do filmmakers or audiences any favors to do the shitty 3D. Eventually some people did it right there was a lot of people doing it wrong. And I'm worried that we're going to get movies coming out that just look motion smoothed. Mm-hmm. And that's not a great aesthetic. I actually also think, though, and I appreciate that James Cameron is trying to create a more transportive experience. He's trying to make us feel like going into the movie theaters gives us something we can't get at home. Yeah. I, I get that. I, I do. And I think there are certain shots in this movie that are very, very pretty. But I don't think he's cracked the visual language of it. You don't I think so. No, I don't think so. I think that I think that when you've got that high frame rate mm-hmm. and everything across the entire camera, across the entire frame, sorry, it looks equally crisp and detailed. Mm-hmm. 
just a lot of information. Oh, that's a lot of information, especially on a big screen. And I started fantasizing about watching it on home, at home, where I don't have to scan an entire vista in order to find yeah, the useful uh, information. I think that when you're watching it in the big screen and you're cramming your frame with information, it's one thing if what you're seeing in this high frame rate is like a long shot of a kid swimming with a whale. Hmm. Then it's very, very clear what we're supposed to be focused on. But when you've got a lot of dynamic action, especially if it's incidental, there's like that train heist you mentioned. Uh -huh. There's a lot of shots of just a bunch of different Navi walking around in every plane, uh -huh. all equally crisp. There's no focal depth to speak of. Uh, and honestly, it's difficult to know where I'm supposed to be following the action. This I don't is, know uh... where I'm supposed to be looking right now in order to follow the story. Mm -hmm. And when you cut, I'm sometimes surprised at what you cut to because I think the onus becomes more on the filmmaker to create clear staging I think, in yeah, order I was, for that story for that frame rate to be effective and uh, not a distraction i was gonna say yeah if, uh, when you're dealing with uh there's a way to sort of create lines of vision yeah in, in a frame just to go back to basic filmmaking 101 stuff yeah uh, and to guide the eye to certain yeah, places yeah your, your eye is supposed to look at yeah. something usually you can put something in the foreground yeah. something really brightly colored or differently yeah. colored in the back there, lighting uh, focal yeah. depth um action uh mm. there even just little weird tricks you yeah. can do yeah but i think that's more an issue of filmmaking yeah than it is with technology agreed but uh, i think the yeah, filmmaker then, needs to meet the technology yeah. in order for the technology to also, work so we're old agreed and uh i think it was um I think it was David Boardwell mm. who talked about uh, what he called chaos cinema. And he's yeah. he was referring specifically to the films of Michael Bay, yeah. uh, where um, the idea of there being uh, any kind of uh, visual continuity, any kind of mm. actual physical map of like spatial continuity uh, within a frame, mm -hmm. that's kind of gone in a lot of things like Michael Bay. We don't know where things are in relation it's to a lot each more other. Chaos, it's just yeah. a lot more movement. Yeah. Uh, and he started to call that chaos cinema until he realized... There's actually people who are doing something really similar, but doing it better than a yeah. filmmaker like Michael Bay. Exactly my point. And yeah. it's actually just sort of like a, a heightened amount of information. Yeah. And if you look over the grand uh, evolution of film, as editing has gotten a lot faster, mm -hmm. as technology has gotten more advanced, the amount of information a young viewer is able to absorb and mm -hmm. process has just increased. Agreed. So... I, I don't want to be that old guy yeah. who's complaining about the way things used to look. Yeah. I want to, I want to really give this thing that I don't think is necessarily great looking right now mm -hmm. consideration uh, for for the future. That this is yeah. actually something that is something interesting visually that is being tried. And yeah. I think that with the way of water way more than it's been tried in the past mm -hmm. is is actually achieving something. I, I, listen, I, I agree with pretty much all of your points there. Mm -hmm. I really do. I think it is important to not reject the new. Mm -hmm. uh, however, I think it's also important to be able to say when the new could be better. And when the yeah, new is... Because, I mean, I, again, I agree high frame rate is something people are going to at least keep experimenting with. Yeah. Um, Especially after this. I oh, I'm sure I'm, I'm, I'm sure people are going to be interested to give it a try. And I think more people are going to be interested in, in the, the overall experience. Um, I hope it doesn't replace things. I feel that about way about every new technology. 
Mm-hmm. There's a really unfortunate tendency in Hollywood in particular when a new technology comes along to abandon the old technology. Just to focus on the new thing. And yeah. they do different things. We should keep all the tools in the box and we should keep them alive because people will want to try different aesthetics, different frame sizes, different frame rates, different color schemes, different all kinds of tech can be used to create all different things. Um, but I think Michael Bay was a good example there because Michael Bay's particular editing style, uh, especially in his more, uh, um, well, let us say chaotic movies like Armageddon, for example, um, it's a whirlwind of information. And I think that young people who are still learning the language of cinema and maybe are less uh, um, set in their ways about what cinema looks like uh-huh. are able to just sort of accept, oh, is that what cinema looks like? Okay, I will learn this language. Mm-hmm. And then they get better at accepting that language and it doesn't read as chaotic to them. That's part of it. That's mm-hmm. totally part of it. And I fully accept that. And I, I try to be as open to that as possible. But I, I think the point you brought up is Michael Bay isn't necessarily the person doing that well. Yeah. And I think it's one thing to tell a story in a language, and I think it's another thing to understand that language. And I think what James Cameron is doing here is inventing the language, but I don't think he's elevated every single sentence to poetry yet. And I think there's a lot of growing pains that we're seeing here in terms of using the high frame rate, but not adapting the storytelling style. I think he's still using some older cinematic techniques. He's trying things out. That unfortunately, with the high frame rate, don't contribute to telling the story very well. Mm. And are actually holding it back a little bit. There are moments in which it is fine, in which it is clear. But when there is a lot of information on the screen, especially when there's any kind of rapid editing involved, it and again, especially on a big screen, I think actually on a small screen at home, a lot of this problem is going to be mitigated. Mm. Because we've got the entire frame in our vision at once. Yeah. And we don't need to worry quite so much about mm. finding something in the frame uh. to latch onto. <laughs> I think that's going to be... A, 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 I think that's an issue that people are going to have to deal with when they're working with high frame rate is... We, a lot of the tools that allowed us to guide the eye... Mm are being removed and we need to find new ways to do that or we really need to focus on the handful of ways we have left that work in order uh, to tell a cleanly effective visual story. I think uh, James Cameron is is, uh, so good at a certain kind of like action filmmaking Mm -hmm. that I, I wasn't so disoriented. Uh, during I wasn't scenes. consistently disoriented, um, but I was yeah. enough that I, I recognized oh, okay. what, what what the problem was and why yeah, or, this shot doesn't work for me, but that shot yeah, does. Or, or nearly those kinds of action sequences are really disorienting for me. Yeah. But for I guess this, he, he cracked it somehow for me. I, I think was by able the end he does. Going on, I think by I'm, the end it's pretty much it mostly works. But I think mm-hmm. in the first third in particular, it there's some really awkward right. use of that. Might might have been just our eye getting used to it. Hey, maybe uh, maybe I, I, I accept. I'll that. say this. Um, James Cameron is such an arrogant dude uh, that he probably would say something along the lines of, well, if you missed something, see it again. Yeah, I know. I get uh, it, James. Uh, I do. I think he even is, is on record saying, uh, somebody asked, well, like, this is such a big movie. It's like three hours and 15 minutes mm-hmm. long. When When's a good point for people to go to the bathroom? He says, I don't care. Just see it a second time to see the part you missed. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know what? I... There's something refreshingly direct about that. Uh, yeah, I don't, it's fine. I like think he, he's he's in, he's kind of a prick, but he's mm-hmm. earned it. <laughs> I I don't like the idea that he's two, earned it. His last two movies were the biggest movies Look, of all time, you, so of course he's a little arrogant. I, I, I'm not saying it doesn't explain 
having an ego, but I also think it's not always becoming. Not, um, not becoming, but no. when you make the two biggest movies of all I, Again, time. I'm not I'm not saying he... he to, to say that he's earned it suggests that it's there are certain people that who are... acceptable. That, yeah. that it's totally acceptable to be a dick. And I'm, again, he's not being evil or anything like that, but he just sounds like kind of a dick sometimes when he's getting, like, really extra cocky about it. And I get it. But also, I'm remembering that when uh, returning generals would come home from war in the Roman Empire, uh-huh. they would hold a parade for them. Congratulations on your victory. They would throw laurels and confetti and whatever, and they would parade them through the streets in a chariot. But there was always one guy seated right next to the returning general from their victories at war throughout this entire parade who would repeat over and over again, and I'm translating, Remember thou art mortal. Mm. Remember thou art mortal. Mm. For the well, love of God, don't get cocky about this. Memento mori. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and you know what? It's, it's good advice. <laughs> but that's about But that's about how you conduct yourself in areas. That doesn't have anything to do with the movie. Um, this is some very exciting filmmaking. It is still built on a foundation that I think has serious fundamental narrative and thematic problems Mm. but it is more interesting to watch than the last movie it is more attractive visually and i know that's a big part of it for james cameron i know indeed the idea is hey look at new images Mm. was it was it herzog who said cinema is starved for new images yeah i mean there's there's not enough new images yeah yeah, james cameron is we we got some trying trying there's at least a few in here i haven't seen before kudos um, it's, it's it's all these like yeah. ar- artificial space yeah. aliens, which look a lot of them look cool. Almost real, yeah. A lot of them look cool. Like, listen, there's some really cool stuff in here. There's a story that had a more interesting emotional impact on me than anything in the in the original Avatar. Um, this is a better film. Is it a great film? I don't think quite, but I do think that it is too interesting and technically accomplished, and by the end, at least too exciting like it ends well hmm. uh for me to write it off so i actually do with some misgivings because i think there are things that it doesn't do well and i still think that there's still this undercurrent of othering of people who hmm. you know in colonial stories are very much othered um even when it's positive it's still a, a perspective that isn't necessarily very positive. Um, but this is an improvement. This is really interesting filmmaking and I can't uh, uh, ignore it. Yeah. yeah so, uh, there's, yeah, there's, there's something kind of exciting when a film of this, this scope comes along and it hasn't come yeah. along since the last avatar. Yeah. You know, when, when uh, a blockbuster felt like it was actually doing something kind of exciting with filmmaking. Yeah, it's it's really it's, pushing things. Yeah, it, it's more of uh, exciting in terms of its technicals yeah. than it is of its artistry. Very much so. But when we're dealing with uh, film as just sort of a, a baseline visual medium, it's okay to have ornamentation <coughs> mm-hmm. be the goal. And I feel like yeah. that's what's going on here. Are the characters all that interesting? Not they're not terribly sophisticated. No. Is the story complex? No. Uh, no. Are there cool whales that? free willy the fuck out of a military vessel yeah there's that, <laughs> and that's fun yeah so. <laughs> and again I, as i said before in the original avatar i don't think it looks good as an excuse to, for telling a shitty story mm. but the story is better than the original avatar admittedly that's a low bar but 
I it think func- it functions like as a story. I, I think fine. I think again, if I'm just looking at it in the nuts and bolts, the first third is a fucking mess. <laughs> it sets up stuff, but it does so really clumsily. Mm. The pacing is awful. It doesn't. I don't think the first half of this movie works, other than to set up stuff for later on. The middle third is a very attractive piece of travelogue sci-fi fantasy filmmaking. Mm. Uh, undercurrent of othering, which is unfortunate, but still impressive visually. The final action sequence is incredibly long and incredibly exciting and very fucking cool. So, mixed bag. All right. Mixed <laughs> bag, but but still pretty neat. Uh, time to review some movies on the critically acclaimed scale. Uh, this will be a very short one, so I only did two movies. Uh, the critically acclaimed scale goes from C- minus to C+, plus, where C- minus is below average. That's a movie that we don't particularly recommend. Might just be not very good. It might be crap. <laughs> A C is average, uh, you know, some good, some bad, uh, more for one audience than another. You know, just not a, not a definite recommendation, not a definite uh, a warning, just it's okay. And then uh, C plus is above average. That's a movie we genuinely recommend, whether we simply like it quite a bit or think it's the best movie ever made. Uh, I'm actually going to start, usually we start at the back and move forward, but why don't we start with Bardo? Since it's oh, been yeah. a bit since we talked about it. Uh, Whitney, how do you feel about Bardo? I'm going to give it a C plus. Okay. I, I know uh, that's that's an unpopular view. Uh, a yeah. lot of people find this Great. to be too self indulgent, but when you're doing so in service of all of this like interesting visual stuff, it, it's kind of fun to be lost, and it's yeah. actually a lot of interesting ideas that you're butting up against, even if they are a bit of a mess. I've, I've said in the past, I mm. I prefer a mess in service of ambition. Towards something that is unambitious and clean. And this Agreed. is a little bit messy, but there's a lot going on, and I, I think it's just yeah. incredibly interesting. All right. And on that note, Avatar The Way of Water. Uh, I wouldn't discourage anybody from seeing this. You know, it's, yeah. it's again, to all of our points, it's technically impressive more than it is moving. Mm-hmm. But the technicals are legitimately impressive. So, yeah, uh, yeah this is one of those... You know, if if you are in the mood to see like a grand spectacle on a gigantic screen in 3D, this is the one. This yeah. is the one you do it for. So uh, yeah, C plus. I'm gonna give it a very high C. Okay. Uh, I think that when it has achieves spectacle status, it is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's a lot of movie in there, and a lot of it doesn't work for me. Uh, but when it does, it's great. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of the definition of a mixed bag. All right. All right. There's parts of it where if this was the whole movie, I'd be giving it a C minus. <laughs> there's parts of it where if this was the whole movie, I'd be giving it a C. And there's parts of it if this is a whole movie, I'd be giving it a C plus. Mm. Uh, taken all together, I can't not give that a C. But um, it's certainly very interesting. I just I recommend that you go into it with your eyes wide open, partly because it's very pretty and you don't want to miss stuff. Uh, but also, don't be so dazzled by what's going on that you're missing the story that it's telling, which is sometimes interesting, sometimes clunky, and sometimes not great. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's where I land right now. But, but William, space whales. The space whales are cool. <laughs> you, and I, you and I had this immediate reaction that I think you and I are the only two people on the planet who are going to have this reaction. There's a... Um, there's one special whale in Avatar. A very specific super whale. There's one particular super whale who's like takes up the most attention. It's just more of a character than the other whales. Uh, and that whale steals the movie so much, and it's so gigantic. We get a whale flashback. It's, yeah, it's we get awesome. a flashback from the whale. It's amazing. Um, that movie, that whale, was such a distraction for us in a good way. It was just exactly our favorite character that it became. 
the mega weapon <laughs> of Avatar The Way of Water. And what we mean by that is this. There is a movie called Warrior of the Lost World. It is an incredibly shitty Mad Max ripoff hmm. uh, that was lampooned on Mystery Science Theater 3000. That's how we know about it. Yeah. There's a scene in that movie where we meet the main, like, evil weapon that the bad guys have. And it's basically... They've talked, a gi- they've talked about mega weapon, like, throughout the third act of the movie. Yeah, it's, like, a, it's gonna, this... It's a sick mega weapon on this, it's this know, the hero. Yeah, there's a whole caravan full of good guys coming to fight the bad guy. And the bad guys send mega weapon out. Mega weapon is a big truck. It, but it's, it's a really big truck. It, it, it's, uh... Yeah, it's like a, a construction vehicle, but one that like yeah. doesn't go on commercial roads. Huge yeah. vehicle, yeah, really gigantic d- wheels, mildly they, tricked out and, to and, look yeah, sci-fi, and they, and they dressed it up with like spikes and stuff, and yeah. they called it Mega Weapon. Uh, and there's a bit in the movie where Mega Weapon runs over the sentient talking motorcycle, who is the bane of your existence while you <laughs> watch that movie. Really obnoxious. Just the thing. most annoying fucking character in like any movie, and Mega Weapon crunches over it slowly and Joel and the bots start chanting yes mega weapon mega weapon mega weapon and they just mega weapon becomes their favorite part of the movie that's the whale in Avatar 2 they keep talking about how like mega weapon probably really cool we'd probably hang out if if I knew mega weapon and they end up like there's a skit where they call mega weapon on the phone it's like he answers questions never married but he like hangs out with his sister's kids he's like really nice and plays football have you ever met Killdozer like oh that guy don't get me started like that's how i feel about the whale and avatar it's the best part of the movie it's fucking cool and i really think if i met the whale in person it would really like me and i want to name my first child after that whale uh it's so so you and i have that there's a mega weapon in avatar 2 that's the best part of the film anyway that is it for critically acclaimed thank you everybody for listening uh we will be back uh we might not have an episode uh, uh, right away next week because Christmas is on Sunday. We want to spend it with our families, yeah, yeah, yeah. but we will have an episode in which we talk about the last uh, movies released uh, throughout the year. This will include films like Babylon, Matilda the Musical, a whole bunch. Uh, and then a week after that, we're going to do our big list of our picks for the very best films of the year. Yeah. Uh, some of which you may be able to guess, some of which you might not have because I've done a lot of catching up. Mm. A lot of films I didn't get a chance to review, we didn't talk about at all, that I've been able to see might make the list should be an interesting conversation we're looking forward to having it so thank you everybody for listening if you want to listen to this episode and all of our other stuff uh free of uh commercials you can head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network all of our new podcasts are available without commercials and we have a lot of exclusive ones we just released a podcast um where we did a commentary track for the he-man and she-ra christmas special we also just released a podcast where whitney and i did something a little different Mm-hmm. <laughs> we called it Taste Off, like, we, we, like Face Off. We did a food podcast. Yeah, something well, I always well, kind of wanted to do, actually. Well, more, more specifically, we did a drink podcast. It's, it's, it's something you ingest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, we, we did a taste testing podcast in which we tried out uh, Guar, the heavy metal band, has their own whiskey. So we tried <laughs> Guar whiskey and we did a... a Ragnarok Rye. We, we did a taste test comparison with a couple of different whiskeys at different price points. Uh, and uh, that was a lot of fun. And if you and that is actually available if you go to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. That is available even if you're not a patron, but it's only available on the Patreon page. Uh-huh. So head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. You can listen to a bonus episode where Whitney and I try different kinds of booze. And if you like that, 
let us know. Send us a comment on the Patreon page. Uh, and uh, maybe we'll make some more. Because that was kind of fun. It was a nice little change of pace. Uh, uh, you can always uh, send us an email. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, Whitney, what is our P.O. Box? Yeah, send us an actual physical letter to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. That is correct, sir. And, um, yeah, we might read your email on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail, so feel free to respond to anything we discussed this week, ask us questions about anything you want us to talk about. The floor is yours. Uh, we're on Twitter, at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And I think that's a wrap. Never forget, everyone's a critic. I'm sorry, what?